This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Oh, Episode 413, submission number 023, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill aired on the NBC television network from June 1st of 1983 to March 29th of 1984, over two seasons, totaling 26 episodes, one of which went unaired. So that's 10 more than Uncle Crack's Buck, Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Schooled, J.J. Starbuck, a number of aired episodes of Salvage One, and infinitely many other shows. And Greg, if you have it handy... This is actually the first entry we have that's premiered in June of 1983. So this falls in between Bob Rooney Day on Late Night with David Letterman and We Got It Made, which premiered on September 8th. But overall, for 1983, we must have covered two dozen shows. I mean, obviously, Manimal, Mr. Smith. We covered Hitman. We covered Just Men. We covered... Did we cover Go at one point? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we did Go... Again, the list goes on forever and ever and ever. It's, I believe, the 30th subject that originates in 1983, not the show itself. Okay, so that means, like, for the 1983 uh, January 3rd shows, Hitman and, and Just Men, that would count as one entry. But still, 413 episodes, 30 of them have been about the year 1983. You forgot the most important show on NBC from 1983. The match game Hollywood Squares Hour. No, after last week, I think Mr. Smith takes the title. That was a good show. And it had Bobo as himself. And it had Bobo hitting on Miss Veronica, the weather orangutan. Just remember, Bobo sucked her lollipop. Theme music, please! We're here this week, and as I said last week, we're doing sort of the spiritual successor to Suckapalooza last year. We're doing what I affectionately call 
Dabney Colmania. We're talking about Dabney Coleman. Really, one of the great actors from the 80s. Just didn't have any good shows, to be honest. In case you don't know, Dabney Coleman, probably best known for being the boss on 9 to 5. He was also in Tootsie. He was in one of my favorite movies as a kid, Cloak and Dagger. And he tried taking that success to television, and he had marginal success. He was on 24 episodes of Boardwalk Empire, 67 episodes of The Guardian. He was on 14 episodes of Recess as the principal. I didn't watch Recess, so that's a little new to me. Oh, another show I remember... And you got to think we're going to cover this one day. Madman of the People. I remember that show. And he also played Merle Jeter on 148 episodes of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And appeared on a couple of episodes of Fernwood Tonight. And appeared on 130 episodes of Fernwood Forever. So he's deeply entrenched in that Fernwood Tonight, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman universe. But we're not here to talk about Fernwood Forever, Fernwood Tonight, Mary Hartman, Mary Herman, Madman of the People. We're here to talk about the first TV show that he had a starring role on that really taking a look at all the reviews I saw, everybody said this should be a hit. But obviously, as I said earlier, 26 episodes says everything but a hit. We'll get into the hows and whys later. But briefly, what this was about was uh, Dabney Coleman played Buffalo Bill Bittinger. He was an egotistical talk show host on WBFL, a small TV station in Buffalo, New York. See, his name is Bill Bittinger. He's in Buffalo, New York. We get Buffalo Bill. Clever. And really, people who worked with him did not like Bill's qualities Again, he had uh, a bit of an ego, to say the least. He was sort of harsh around uh, his staff, so maybe made a little bit of a uncomfortable workplace, if you will. And he actually aspired for bigger things. That was his goal. Well, I think that's like every TV personality's goal is to move up in the food chain. Yeah, you like being in Buffalo, but you know what? It would be better if you're in Chicago. Or it would be better if you're in even, let's say, a Toronto, a big metropolitan city, which is not that far from Buffalo. So, yeah, Bill's ego uh, may get the best of him and makes life miserable for everybody he works with, particularly his manager at the station, Carl Shubb, who's constantly dodging lawsuits based on Bill's behavior. The one person that Bill is unable to bully is his director and on-and-off lover, Jojo White. Ooh. So, yeah, he wants to go to the big leagues, and maybe it's not best if you, like, trample all over your co-workers in the process. And what happens when he does trample all over his co-workers? Wacky shenanigans happen. There you go, Greg. There's the new hilarity ensues. Wacky shenanigans happen. Good. I knew you'd like me to use that. And as I said earlier, the critics actually raised Buffalo Bill. 
And I have an article from the day Buffalo Bill premiered, and this is from William Hickey. It's called Buffalo Bill Rides the Range of Top Comedy. NBC, a network striving to improve its primetime comedy lineup, is making a solid move with a splendidly humorous production called Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill has Dabney Coleman as a slightly dim-witted but totally ambitious television talk show host in Buffalo, New York. The character he plays, Bill Bittinger, is outrageous, obnoxious, deceitful, and thoroughly insecure. He is also highly amusing and notably endearing in his transparency. Saves of Merle Jeter in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Again, that's the character that Dabney Coleman played in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Coleman has done it again. That is, he has taken a character with little redeeming social value and somehow made him an enjoyable buffoon, a person to be reckoned with in the network television primetime scheme of things. With apologies to Buffalo, Bittinger is the proverbial big fish in a small pond and unhappy about it. While he praises the city at every possible opportunity, all the while he's plotting to get to the Big Apple and the big time. As the storyline goes, Bittinger, like many other TV talk show hosts, will do anything to boost his ratings. Also, according to the storyline, the more outrageously he behaves, the more the citizens of Buffalo tune him in, thereby sending his ratings heading for the stratosphere. It's a good thing that they do, for his big boss, the owner of the station, can't stand him. Being a practical man, however, the proprietor of the mythical WBFL-TV tolerates Bittinger's presence because high ratings translates to big profits. Every farce needs a touch of realism to make it play. There's more to this, but I'm not going to give you like all 20, 30 paragraphs. It's actually quite a long article. But that's the general gist of it is Bill Bittinger loves Buffalo, doesn't want to stay in Buffalo, wants to go to New York. And basically, he's not making anybody stop him. He's going to irritate everybody he can. We talked about Dabney Coleman already. We don't need to get further into his resume. So we'll talk about the other people in this series. Playing his off-and-on girlfriend that we mentioned earlier, JoJo White is Joanna Cassidy. And we mentioned her because I believe we talked about her in The Cool Kids. She was a guest star on that. Yes, we did. I can't believe that's the only thing we talked about her in would be that. Yeah. She's had like a storied career. She was in like Blade Runner. She was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You're right about that. I'm just surprised that the only thing we might have talked about her in was the cool kids. Playing the station manager, Carl Shubb. This is another one of those cases. We talked about it in the past, uh, the butterfly effect where, you know, if something happened, that TV history might be changed forever. If Buffalo Bill actually lasted more than a year, I think we'd have some changes uh, with a certain TV show, one that's beloved to me. Playing Carl Shubb, the manager of the TV station, is Max Wright. Willie Tanner. Oh, I thought we were about to talk about Misfits of Science, because we did talk about him in Misfits of Science. You're right, we did. Now I wonder if Buffalo Bill lasted longer, how does that affect Misfits of Science? Again, stepping on the butterfly, changing time forever. But no, seriously, I know him best, and probably everybody listening to this knows him best as Willie Tanner on ALF. And 
And if you get Plex, there's a 24-7 ALF channel. Not just 24-7 ALF, but you also get ALF Tales and you get ALF the Animated Series. You get all the ALF outside of Project ALF. But also, ALF is on the Maximum Effort channel on Freebie. Yeah, but it only airs like two times a day from what I've seen. Yeah, but it's still airing on Maximum Effort. It's still airing on Maximum Effort, and we've talked about how much we love Maximum Effort. Playing Woody, I don't have a role for him necessarily. I'm guessing he works at the station, maybe as a friend of Buffalo Bill's, is John Fiedler. And actually looking at his face, we've talked about him. Where people might know him from is he voiced Piglet in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. He was Piglet's voice. Oh, but also he was juror number two in one of my favorite movies of all time, 12 Angry Men. But again, you look at the face and you know, you've seen him. And again, we've talked about him because I've seen his IMDb in the past. And also he didn't just voice Piglet in 1977. He voiced Piglet up till 2005. Ooh, who's Heffalump movie? Oh, I remember that. Who's Heffalump movie? You would have been 20 at the time. What were you doing watching Pooh's Heffalump movie? I worked at Blockbuster then. Okay, okay. Valid point. Valid point. <laughs> Could just see 20-year-old Greg sitting in front of the TV. I want to see the Heffalump movie again. While working at Blockbuster. It's like, oh, we don't have anything better. I'll just go in the break room and watch Pooh's Heffalump movie. I'm taking a look at Pooh's Heffalump movie. If I'm not mistaken came out shortly before his death. And just taking a look, again, I said we've talked about him in the past. I see Love, Sydney. I see Flying High. There's a number of shows we talked about him uh, in the past. I think we talked about him in something more recent. I'm not going to sit here looking for it. But yeah, again, known quantity, not with us any longer, unfortunately. Playing Wendy Killian, who is a production assistant, she'd go on to bigger things after this. This did not define her career in any way. You may have heard of her. Gina Davis. I'm not even going to say anything because if you don't know who Gina Davis is, go watch a movie. Go watch Thelma and Louise. A League of Their Own. So many movies. Hey, you could go watch Beetlejuice. You can go ask Lauren Bobin how great watching Beetlejuice is. Good night, everybody. No, no, no. Greg, why did you? You set up that joke, and I just crushed it right over the plate. Well, no, I'm going to go for the Grand Slam, because apparently Lauren Bobert was trying to feel her partner's Beatles juice. Good night, everybody. Oh, now you're silent. Okay. We're not going to talk about her companion. We're not going to talk about her, period, please. Playing New Dell Springs in this series, a podcast favorite. And again, another case of what if this actually lasted longer than a year? Because this person probably wouldn't get the role I think he's best known for. Talking about Charles Robinson. Oh, and speaking of Lauren Bobert, what was that she was holding? That's a penis. Thank you. I couldn't tell from this angle. And last but not least, in terms of regular actors, 
another case where, you know, if this lasted like five seasons, this guy wouldn't have gotten his role of a lifetime. In the role of Tony, don't have the last name, unfortunately, is Meshach Taylor. That's right. If this lasted longer than one year, he would have never been in the 1987 cinematic masterpiece, Mannequin. I would! And Designing Women, just saying. And to tell the truth, let's just complete the trifecta there. By the way, how'd you like the fact that they snuck in that one Burger King commercial with Elizabeth Shue and Andrew McCarthy in the Mr. Smith break? Wonderful. The entire Mr. Smith episode was just absolutely brilliant. Did we mention the creators of this show? I was actually going to get to that because these are people that we've talked about often. This is, I think, at least the third show we've talked about them on, and I'm sure there's more. Who we're talking about are Tom Patchett, Jay Tarsus, and Bernie Burlstein. I think Bernie Burlstein is the true legend of the three, not to minimize what Jay Tarsus and Tom Patchett have done. I just think he's the bigger name, Bernie Burlstein. But Jay Tarsus, again, I think this is the third episode we've talked about him on, at least the third because we definitely talked about him on Open All Night. And we definitely talked about him on The Duck Factory, which would have also been another 1984 show. So again, a, a quality name. And spoiler, we're going to talk about him the next episode too. So that's going to be four episodes where we've talked about him. And Tom Patchett, I do believe, is the partner of, uh, of Jay Tarsus in terms of production, creation, whatnot. I remember his name on Open All Night for sure. Tom Patches. So we've talked about him as well. And with that, let's talk about some episodes. Starting with the pilot. When his best friend Pete Killian of 60 Minutes dies, Bill Bittinger, the egocentric talk show host of the high-rated local show Buffalo Bill, immediately applies to 60 Minutes as a replacement news anchor. While Bill makes absurd pledges to Dan Thornwell, it is obvious to anyone but Bill that director Jojo White and the CBS Network executive Dan Thornwell are attracted. Bill later blunders into Joanna's apartment, picking up where he thinks he left off, even though Joanna has changed the lock on her door and told him to not drop by without calling first. Even when Thornwell appears at the door for their date, it takes Bill a few minutes to realize that Joanna and Dan are on a prearranged date, though he still tries to turn it to his advantage. After turning down an apparent contract offer from Carl, he receives a phone call from CBS. When he tells the live audience that he is elected to stay in Buffalo for his talk show, Jojo opines the crew that Bill obviously was not offered 60 minutes. Bill refuses an order from Carl to hire a new research assistant until he meets and subsequently hires the late Pete Killian's beautiful and intelligent daughter, Wendy. Maybe it's just me. Seems kind of weird that they'd mention not just another network on this show, but another show on that network. You know, I know that NBC didn't have much going for it necessarily in the news department in 1983. I mean, they could have used Today. They could have used First Camera, even though that's probably a step or two down. But I just find it weird that they used uh, the name CBS and used 60 Minutes, unless this was originally 
pitch to CBS. We do have a name in this episode playing Dr. Murphy, the professor himself from Gilligan's Island, Russell Johnson. Got another name in this episode, too. Somebody we talked about already. Playing Dan Thornwell, Jason of Star Command himself, Craig Littler. This takes us to episode two. Buffalo Beat. After his bad interview with female chef Teresa Gallardo, Bill is given a co-host, prompting him to be worried about his popularity. Much to his relief, actress and model Tamara Brooks has stage fright, panicking. Bill is fearful for his life when his African-American makeup artist, Nudell, confronts him over Bill's comments about him. Nudell being Charles Robinson, as we mentioned earlier. couple names in this episode. Playing the lovely Tamara Brooks, the equally lovely Simone Griffith. Annie from Death Race 2000. And playing the chef, Teresa Gallardo, Elsa Raven. Ida Strauss from Titanic played a role on Amen as the uh, housekeeper to uh, Deacon Fry, Sh- Sherman Hemsley. Make sure he's all prim and proper for the Boom Boom Room. Episode 3, Woody Quits. After enduring insults from Bill for three years, Woody quits as a stage manager and demands an apology, prompting Bill to hire Nudell as his replacement. Nudell turns out to be an incompetent stage manager. Woody, who also works for a company that manages properties, threatens to evict Bill out of the apartment. In the station's cafeteria, Bill hurts Woody by pushing his chair onto him, but then apologizes. Woody takes it as an apology for Bill's past demeanor toward him. That will take us to episode four, Buffalo Bill and the Movies. During his interview with actress Lauren Stockton, Bill calls Joan Seeger, the producer of the movie My Father's Blood, featuring Lauren, for an audition to be a character's father. After Bill loses the part, he rehearses a scene with a firefighter chief at the talk show to win his audience's esteem. Unfortunately, the rehearsed scene prompts the audience to praise the chief's acting abilities, leaving Bill disappointed. Even Woody thinks that Bill stunk and overacted. I don't want to say I'm surprised, but Buffalo Bill comes across as a bit of a ham, as one who would overact. Playing Joan Seeger, the director of the film that Lauren Stockton is in, is a lady by the name of Lou Leonard, who was also in an episode of Amen, but was on 10 episodes as Gertrude Riley of Jake and the Fat Man. The original, not the prequel. Did she get asked by the Fat Man about what was in the cheese Danish? No, I don't think she got asked about the cheese Danish and what was in it. Sorry, Greg. Lou Leonard, looking at her, I remember where I know her from. She was on the season three premiere episode of Married with Children, where she played like the evil librarian, Mrs. DeGroot. Al hated her. And Al hated her even more because Al had a book from like fifth grade that he didn't return. And there were like $2,000 in late fines accrued to it. And so he's like, well, I returned the book. Okay, let's you know go to the shelf then and take a look at it. And Al and her go to the bookshelf. And he's like, is that a duck? 
you know, trying to get her attention so he could slip the book back in there. And then finally, he <laughs> he pushes this mobile ladder into her. She sort of stumbles over and he puts the book in and says, oh, look, it's been here all along. The little train that could. And Al got busted because they had a video camera there and the video went all across Chicago news and they called him like the biggest bum in Chicago. Oh, Al. Could it be that you don't have the $2,000? Could it be that I was correct when I made an educated guess that you would fail in life? Could it be that the nails that hold your chair together are from the planet Krypton? <laughs> oh, look, it's after 12. That's another 20 cents you owe us. Well, it just so happens that I returned that book years ago. I'd remember if you did. You weren't here. I'm always here. Not that day. I believe that was the day of the big cake heist. <laughs> you were rounded up for questioning. Perhaps a policeman's rubber hose can get to the truth. Wait, I'll just go to the shelves and get that book and prove it to you. We'll both go. So, Mr. Bundy, what do you do for a living, presuming you're not still in high school? <laughs> Librarian hitman. I thought so. Uh, let's see, I, I know I put it here somewhere. Uh, is that a duck? The book, Bundy, the book. Yeah, uh, maybe it could be... Uh, <laughs> oh, here it is. The little engine that could. Boy, this brings back a lot of memories. You planted that in there. Prove it, DeGroote. <laughs> a loser? I think not. <laughs> so, I paid a little fine. I apologized. That was it. Oh, see, Al, you were worried over nothing. Yep, you're right. Kids, let this be a lesson. You can't do wrong doing right. <laughs> On the darker side of the news, surveillance cameras in the Oakwood Library caught the man with the most overdue book in the city's history as he sneaked the little engine that could back on the shelves to avoid paying the fine. Watch carefully in slow motion as he distracts and almost kills the librarian. Then slips the book back on the shelf. So take a good look at this man. He's been identified as Chicago's own Al Bundy. In this reporter's opinion, a true piece of human garbage. Dad, let me try something out on you. How does this sound? Bud Smith. <laughs> yeah, Mom, we were watching. Didn't he look good? <laughs> well, Daddy, this may be the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to this family. I mean, we've been training for something like this all our lives, but <laughs> you're never really ready. Mrs. DeGroote. I love it. Did you say there was another name in this episode? Yeah, uh, playing Lawrence Stockton, the actress, is Deborah Geffner, an actress, singer, dancer, writer, director, filmmaker, coach, animal lover, and mom, who was in All That Jazz in 1979. So she and Bob Fosse, they get along just fine. Thank you very much. Episode 5, 
Mrs. Buffalo Bill? After he was turned down by women and friends for dinner, Bill sneaks into JoJo's house by a window out of desperation, surprising her after a disastrous date with Nick. After seven months of flirting with and dating her, Bill proposes marriage to JoJo and sleeps with her, but then he has second thoughts. To his relief, JoJo refuses to marry him, only to have her change her mind to please him. Becoming indecisive, JoJo says Tails for refusal and flips a coin that shows Tails, setting both free from marriage. We have a name who wrote this episode. Meryl Marco. Legend from Late Night with David Letterman. And I believe we talked about Meryl Marco going back again to open all night. Yeah, because I believe she was the creator and executive producer of the show. So again, somebody that Jay Tarsus and Tom Patchett may have a lot of faith in. We're going to move on to episode six called Wilkinson's Sword. After his talk show, Buffalo Bill is canceled in favor of mash reruns. Bill reluctantly takes Woody's job offer to work at the car dealer, Woody's Porsche and Audi. Using the name Rudy, he is belligerent to customers and ruins car parts. Jojo demands that the station manager, Carl, bring the show back. Carl turns to Mr. Wilkinson, who controls the programming of the station. Wilkinson lets Carl decide, and though he is somewhat hostile to Bill, Carl reluctantly resurrects Bill's show and transfers MASH to another channel, where it will compete against Bill's show. And I do see a couple of names in this episode. I don't have a character name for this first person, but we've talked about this person enough. Maybe making a low-key Hall of Fame case. Jim McCrell. Nothing about Celebrity Sweepstakes. Nothing about uh, The Shaggy Dog, Return of the Shaggy Dog. Nothing needs oh, to yeah. be said. It's Jim McCrell. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I just thought Greg would get his uh, Return of the Shaggy Dog reference in there. Well, you already did that for me. You're welcome. Going on to Episode 7 called Guess Who's Coming to Buffalo? Bill's estranged daughter, Melanie, divorces her cheating husband, Steve, and wants attention from her father. Annoyed by her constant presence, Bill ends up berating her in front of everyone at the TV station. He can't ignore her at his apartment when she uses a noisy purifier, impacting his home life. In response, Melanie declares to the crew that she is moving to Fresno, California. Nevertheless, to Bill's chagrin, Melanie accepts a job offer at the station to join the crew. Buffalo Bill plans to depict Eddie, Crazy Eddie Finsick's stunts at Niagara Falls with his barrel. So, no, Greg, not the Crazy Eddie from the commercials back in the 80s who's insane. Sorry. Oh, darn. Crazy Eddie, he's insane! I remember no, those ads. No, you, you're thinking, you got Crazy Eddie confused with Crazy Gideon. No, no, no. There's a Crazy oh. Eddie back in the oh, day. Yeah, it's true in New York. Oh, you're right. I have Crazy Eddie, Crazy Gideon confused. I'm sorry. Easy mistake to make. No, no. C crazy Eddie was crazy. He, he was going insane. Crazy Gideon, he just like threw technology to the ground, gave no craps about it. Yeah. Said to hurry before he changes his mind about these deals. Yeah, he wasn't insane. He said, hurry before I change my mind. And they carried him off in a straight jacket. Melanie Wayne, the estranged daughter, is played semi-regularly in this series by Pippa Pearthree, who was in multiple shows 
on multiple episodes, among which were Day by Day, playing the role of Martha, and Trial Judge Esther Morrow on six episodes of Law and Order. Another person in this episode that does not have a character name is Earl Pomerantz, not known as an actor, but known as a writer. Wrote 96 episodes of Major Dad, which must be darn near every episode, and not just written by, but was also the creator of Major Dad. He also wrote four episodes of Cheers, and I think we've talked about this quite a few times in the last month or two, Best of the West, nine episodes of Taxi, nine episodes of Phyllis, Needless to say, he's done a lot. A lot of writing, not a lot of acting. Episode 8 is called Below the Belt. Melanie, who becomes well-liked by the crew, feels neglected by Bill. When she threatens to move into New Dell's place, Bill becomes worried. During the talk show, Melanie outs herself as Bill's estranged daughter, confronts him over issues like leaving his ex-wife and daughter behind, and is able to reconcile with him. Crazy Eddie ends up dead during a stunt at Niagara Falls, prompting Bill to interview his widowed wife. We told you not to do anything stupid at Niagara Falls. Nothing good ever happens there. People get married. Da-dum-dum. Why, yes, I am single. Why do you ask? Episode 9 is entitled Ratings. Bill hears from Carl that the Nielsen ratings dropped. Bill tries to find fault with the staff, but he ends up blaming himself for losing touch with other people. After going to JoJo for comfort at night, he goes to the bus station, meets the janitor, Charles, who is an avid viewer of Buffalo Bill, and signs an autograph for him. Bill is punched by the homeless man for refusing to give him a quarter, leaving Bill unconscious. The following day, Woody wakes him up and carries him to the station. Bill realizes that he lost his wallet. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And playing Holly Pringle in this episode. Julie Brown. Not talking about downtown Julie Brown. We're talking about Earth Girls Are Easy, Julie Brown. We're talking about the first champ on few, Julie Brown. Al Fan played the homeless man in this episode. Charles Williams was known primarily as an early to mid-80s voice actor, but you've seen him on six episodes of Home Improvement, two episodes of Martin, and 16 episodes of something called Bodies of Evidence. And also, he was Lou on Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Episode 10 is called True Love. Bill is attracted to Melanie's new friend, Angela Katumi, and wants her to play a flute on the talk show, but Carl refuses. When Bill goes against his orders, Carl interrupts the broadcast without regret. Angela breaks up with Bill, especially for his selfishness, after which Bill vengefully breaks everything in Carl's office. Episode 11 is called The Fan. Bill is stalked by the frequent female caller Clara, who claims him as her baby's father. What? When she trespasses the station with fake janitor clothes and walks onto the talk show, Bill shows empathy for Clara, moving the audience and the crew. However, when Carl enters the broadcast booth and is swarmed by bees, he assumes it is the fault of Clara as Alexander Haig, a bee expert who was supposed to be the talk show's guest. Not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! This takes us to episode 12, which is the unaired episode. 
called Hackles. Bill insults Dr. Solomon, the toxic waste expert, at the talk show and interrupts the interview by bringing in the Burt Reynolds lookalike. Wendy confronts Bill, encouraged by Carl and Jojo, and Bill shows sympathy to her, prompting her to reconcile. The following day, Bill changes Wendy's prepared questions for another guest against her will, but Wendy is reluctant to confront him. So that's the end of season one. Now, obviously, this is a critic favorite. We'll take a look at some ratings later on to see if it was a fan favorite. Obviously, it merited a second season. The show didn't immediately start season two in fall of 1983. The first episode of season two actually aired on December 22nd of 1983. So this is like three months after the fall season premiered. And we should note that the first season did run till late August. So yeah, makes sense. Give it a little hiatus, use it as a mid-season replacement or something to fill a slot. And actually, given that date, December 22nd of 1983, I don't think it aired on Friday nights, but I'm just saying, wait, this have replaced Mr. Smith? Don't answer that. We'll talk about that later. We'll start with the first episode, which is called Hit the Road, Nudel. Having enough of makeup artist Nudel's patronization on Bill's ego, Bill tells Carl to fire Nudel. Fearing discrimination lawsuits and the NAACP, Bill hires Nudel back. Before doing so, Bill confronts him about Nudel's attitude and tells him Bill's past story about taking a ride without his pants in a taxi driven by an African-American man. Nudel accepts taking his job back only to demand sharing Bill's dressing room, which he reluctantly accepts. Big name in R&B in this episode. Playing herself, Little Esther Phillips. Hit the top 10 in 1962 with Release Me. And she died less than a year after this episode was recorded. August of 1984. Moving on to episode 2 of season 2, Jerry Lewis Week. Kurt stands up to Bill as the studio does a tribute to Jerry Lewis. And actually about this episode, TV Guide in 1997 ranked this episode on its list of 100 greatest episodes of all time. Give some respect, guys. I don't want to say the number, but I have to. It was episode 69. Nice! What did I say about respect? I gave you guys one simple rule. I said, be respectful, which sort of implied don't say it, and you said it anyhow. Are you proud of yourself? Yes. But, Mike, we have somebody playing uncredited a Jerry Lewis impersonator. I see seven different Jerry Lewis impersonators, but I see the one that you're talking about who is uncredited. The one, the only, the legendary Jim Carrey. And please let us remember that less than a year from now, even a couple months from this point, he'd be in The Duck Factory. Again, a Jay Tarsus show. I think he would already have been on Carson at this point, right? Oh my gosh, you're asking the wrong person. I gotta Google that. But I'm just saying, he would have been on the Duck Factory literally months after this, and again, that was a Jay Tarsus show, so not really a surprise that uh, he was on this. 
So YouTube says Jim Carrey's debut on Carson was November 24th of 83. And another big name playing Staunton McMuller is James Cromwell. I think all we need to say is babe. That'll do pig. And another credit for a show I absolutely loved, which I think went downhill as time went on, but I loved it nonetheless, at least the first two and a half, three seasons. He played Natalie Z's father on The Detour. You guys didn't watch The Detour on TBS? I watched The Detour on TBS. I watched it for Jason Jones. Well, well, Jason Jones, yeah, Jason Jones and Natalie Z, absolutely. But that was such a hilarious show the first two seasons. Then it sort of went sideways the third season, and then it went just totally off the chain the last season. And we're never going to cover it because I love that show so much, at least the first two seasons. No. Did we also mention Keone Young as a Jerry Lewis impersonator? I think you just did. Yep. So we have Jim Carrey, Keone Young, and five other people. And for the people at home who don't know who Keone Young is, could you please fill in the gap there? A voice actor... Uh, that Asian guy from that thing. I believe we talked about him on Tales of the Gold Monkey, but definitely in Samurai Jack and currently on Gremlins Secret of the Mogwai. Oh, I didn't even know that was airing now. We have talked about him in the past before because he was on an episode of Grady. Remember when we entered the Sanford verse, but also. He was on an episode of I'm a Big Girl Now. And he was on an episode of The Duck Factory. And an episode of E slash R. Not E dash R, Greg. Don't get me started. E slash R. And Lady Blue. Oh, that's great. So that's five right there. Just remember, Lady Blue is all about Jamie Rose and her peace. Yeah. You know what we're talking about. Episode three from season two is called The Interview. The staff has an interview with a TV news reporter regarding their true feelings about Bill. And we actually have a name playing that TV reporter. Playing Leanne Cook is Gail Edwards. You might remember her as Vicki Larson on Full House, or she was on It's a Living. Dot Higgins, 120 episodes. And she was on an episode of New Love American Style. You're welcome. It's a good show. It's okay. It's tolerable. We're moving on. I didn't want the G-Man to come in here and argue the merits of New Love American Style. So that'll take us to episode four, Company Inc. The station is sold to Bill's former boss, who had fired him for sleeping with his wife. Guessing this is the new owner of the station, but a big name, playing Hayden Stone, the legendary Martin Landau. Oh. Next up in episodes five and six, it's a two-part episode. The first part is called JoJo's Problem Part One. For some reason, JoJo is lashing out at everyone, and her future with Bill may have something to do with it. And there's no guess of note in that episode. And we'll move on to part two of JoJo's Problem. JoJo's frustration increases when everyone learns about her problem. And again, no names of note there. So moving on swiftly to episode seven in season two. Miss WBFL. JoJo plans to boycott the Miss WBFL beauty contest. I've been to Buffalo. There's no beautiful women there. Oh, sorry, Buffalo. Love you. 
I'm never allowed at Buffalo again, am I? No. Especially not after the things we've said about Josh Allen on this podcast. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and he deserves every last one of them. Josh Allen, great quarterback, rubbish human being. Uh, no, I'd say rubbish quarterback, rubbish human being. Would you agree with me, Greg? Oh, yes. And they love him so much in Buffalo. And I mentioned this to Chico and Greg last week after my trip to Buffalo. I went to a huge sports card shop. And it wasn't all sports cards. It was 40,000 feet, but like the back quarter was sports cards. The front three quarters was basically Buffalo sports stuff. And not kidding. They had Josh Allen everything. Josh Allen bobbleheads, Josh Allen jerseys, Josh Allen college jerseys. You know, if you wanted anything Josh Allen, that was the place to go. And I'm not just talking like one or two bobbleheads. They must have had probably about 100 to 150 of them set up in a display. Not taking my 40 bucks for a Josh Allen bobblehead, unless I'm going to use it for target practice. Oh, wow. Episode 8 is called The Big Freeze. Wendy plans a segment about the Nuclear Freeze Initiative. Oh, this is timely in 1984. Beautiful. I have another capsule. Despite strenuous objections from Bill, Carl, and JoJo, Wendy prepares an hour-long segment covering the Nuclear Freeze Initiative, and Nudell encourages her to use her feminine wiles to make the planned segment come to fruition. Seems like a bit of a hot-button topic in 1984, if you ask me. There's no guess in that episode, so we'll move on to episode 9, which is called The Girl on the Jetty. During a cold winter, Carl's wife kicks him out for bringing his work problems home with him. Compassionate Jojo consoles him by fixing him a fancy home-cooked meal. Romantic sparks fly, then Bill finds out. I think we might need an uh-oh there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We do have a name on this episode. The... Credit is unknown, but her name is Megan Gallagher, and she will come up again this week. But she was in 45 episodes of Millennium, two episodes of Deep Space Nine, and she played the Holyoke Cotty on National Lampoon's Van Wilder, if you remember that far back. Episode 10 is called Buffalo Bill versus the Kremlin. Oh my gosh, more hot button issues in 1984. During an on-air chat with computer gurus, Bill callously accuses his guests of smuggling American computer technology into communist countries. During a commercial break, they threaten Bill and his paranoia skyrockets. Yeah, this is a bit of a hot-button topic in 1984. Computers and Russia. Not a great combination, if you ask me. Even though we must thank uh, Alexei Pajitnov for creating Tetris around this time. Well, he had to have a computer, and he was Russian, so let's make one plus one equal two. That was a really good movie on Apple TV+. Plus. That's a good point. They did have a Tetris movie. I don't have Apple+, Plus, but I might have to get that just to see that. Moving on to episode 11, titled A Hero. Carlson gets a job at WBFL since he idolizes Bill. Aww. An alternate capsule here. Carl is powerless to deal with his rebellious teenage son who idolizes Bill. So Junior gets a job at WBFL. Meanwhile, Bill publicly derides a local businessman for selling defective products, and the vendor shows up seeking revenge. 
And we have at least one name in this episode playing Catherine Zawicki Shub, who I'm going to assume is Carl's wife or ex-wife or some relation to Carl. Susan Rattan, L.A. Law. That's all we need to say. Yes, I'm going to put Diana Moldar falling down the elevator shaft right here. You're welcome. I really don't want to talk about it. See, I don't even need prompting anymore. I know where these things go. But playing Junior, somebody we talked about on the Open All Night episode, Sam Whipple. We did talk about him in the Open All Night episode. I remember that. So again, another person maybe in the J. Tarsus, Tom Passett Rolodex. All right, we're almost there, everybody. Episode 12 is entitled The Tap Dancer. Bill wants to book the Alexandria Brothers tap dancers on the show, but two of them have died. Lone survivor Tom appears on the show, tap dances, and expires during his big finish. Bill is upset enough to rant about the evils of television. He expired during his big finish, huh? They took out all the Alexandria Brothers. <laughs> That's dark. That is really dark. You're absolutely right about that. No names a note there, so we're going to get to the second to last episode. Have yourself a very degrading Christmas. Well, it's no Bevo home for the holidays. <laughs> really? We saw part of that for the first time tonight, and gosh, if Longhorn Network reruns that this holiday season, we're going to cover it. Well, the thing is, this is going to be the last holiday season. It's going to be covered ever because Longhorn Network is going bye-bye. Huh? Longhorn Network is going bye-bye. When Texas moves to the SEC next year, the Longhorn Network is going to fold because oh. it makes no sense for ESPN to have a network devoted to a team from the SEC when they already have the SEC network. Yeah, tons of redundancy. We should note that this episode aired March 22nd of 1984, so nowhere near Christmas. And actually, I wonder if this was originally recorded to air on Christmas, but remember, I mentioned that the second season didn't start till December. So the math actually works out, you know, pushed three months ahead of Christmas. So maybe season two of Buffalo Bill was supposed to premiere in September of 1983? Who knows? Anyhow, Bill refuses to wear a Santa Claus outfit on the Christmas Day segment of his show until the Brazilian actress who is guesting changes his mind by offering him a one-night stand if he wears it. Is this Bill's lucky day? I don't know. Is it going to be Bill's lucky day getting a Brazilian movie star? <laughs> Susan Rutan appears as Carl's wife in this episode. Playing... The Brazilian actress, a beautiful woman, if you don't mind me saying so myself, named Martine Beswick. She was in Thunderball and from Russia with Love. So she's, I don't know if necessarily a Bond girl, but she was a Bond girl. But also, it pains me to say this a little bit. She played Xavier Hollander in The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood. We've talked about the happy hooker goes to Hollywood in the past. I know we have because that's why I took a breath and said, 
I don't want to talk about this, but you know what? For the sake of completeness, we've got to talk about the happy hooker goes to Hollywood. And also we did talk about her previously because she was on one episode of the powers of Matthew star, most likely not the episode where I was like loaded with antibiotics and it says swords and quests. Now I think the episode I saw was actually one episode after that episode 22. So I missed her by a week. I missed the happy hooker goes to Hollywood by a week. Oh, darn. And that's going to take us to the final episode. Church of the Poisoned Mind. After injuring his hand during an on-air martial arts stunt, Bill accuses his next guest, a Roman Catholic priest who is raising funds for a youth center of sexual misconduct, and the audience sees Bill's true colors. Not touching this one with a forklift. And based on that, I'm guessing you guys aren't either. Brad Maul was in this episode. Wasn't he in Match Game for a couple of weeks? I know he was on five episodes of something called Romance Theater. He was indeed on a week of Match Game, but it was in 1991. Well, that's Buffalo Bill. And to say the least, it did get some acclaim. The series did get 11 Emmy Award nominations, including two for Outstanding Comedy Series. Joanna Cassidy also won a Golden Globe Award in 1984. And actually, going back to TV Guide, they ranked Bill Bittinger number 42 on its 50 greatest TV characters of all time. Not bad for a show that lasted one year. One of the top 50 characters of all time. And actually, Brandon Tartikoff, legendary NBC executive wrote in his memoirs that his biggest professional regret was canceling the show. I can understand that, especially given what was coming down the road in fall of 1984. Maybe it's just one of those cases of, you know, too much good stuff coming down the line. I mean, we had at that point, the Mr. Black show, that was the big show premiering in fall of 84, but also you had family ties you had Night Court, which had respectable ratings. You had Cheers, and we talked about Cheers' struggles the first couple of seasons. So maybe it was just a numbers game where, you know, unfortunately, they said, you know, Buffalo Bill's got to go. It's a great show, but it's just not going to fit in this super lineup we're going to have in 1984. I don't have many weeks worth of ratings. I, I do have a few for the second season, so we can at least take a look to see where there might have been problems. I do have the ratings for Christmas of 1983, and really, it's not bad. Out of 67 shows, it ranked right in the middle at 34th, ahead of such big names as That's Incredible, Silver Spoons, Different Strokes, Fantasy Island, St. Elsewhere, Knight Rider, T.J. Hooker, Ripley's Believe It or Not. How was that, Greg? Pretty good. Thank you. Manimal. Rawr! Three's Company. Whiz Kids. So it did better than, again, half the shows if we look at the first week of January, eh, 
maybe it's the holidays. I don't know. 46th out of 67. So that's the bottom third. Not great, but still, again, better than different strokes. Silver Spoons, Ripley's Believe It or Not, We Got It Made, St. Elsewhere, Mama's Family, Whiz Kids. And then another week later, so this is the second full week of January, 57th out of 71 shows. So I think we're seeing the tumble now. Yes, it's a good show, but nobody's watching it. Or not necessarily nobody's watching it, but not enough eyes are watching it, if that makes any sense. And just, again, take a look real fast at uh, other weeks in 1984. I'm seeing it consistently in the 40s and even low 50s. And, yeah, maybe when you're going up against 60, 70 shows, maybe getting a renewal is, well, not necessarily a guarantee, but maybe it might be a little challenging. First week of February, 57th out of 65 shows. So you're like right near the bottom 10% there, bottom 15% for sure. Not good. Uh, 46th out of 59 shows. So again, bottom quarter, not good. And uh looks like this is the second full week of February. 43rd out of 49 shows. Yeah, people just weren't watching it for whatever reason. So yeah, the critics loved it. People just didn't watch. And if we take a look at the schedule, maybe we can find out where the problems arose. Why weren't people watching this? Was there some competition on another network that people absolutely had to see? And for its premiere, I would say the answer is no. It aired on Wednesday nights at 9.30. This is a pretty stacked lineup. You had real people at 8 to start the night. And this would have been real people's second to last season. And then you had Facts of Life, Buffalo Bill at 9.30, and then the last season of Quincy at 10. Buffalo Bill went up against the second half hour of Tales of the Gold Monkey. So not really a big competition there from ABC. CBS looks like they aired a TV movie that night. Now, when it came back for the second season, this is a little tougher. In season two, it aired on Thursday nights. Now I think I'm seeing why it may have been canceled. Thursday nights. Mr. Black is coming to Thursday nights in fall of 1984. Wonder if this would have survived if it was on a different night. Just saying. It aired at 9.30 p.m. on Thursday nights after Cheers. Before Hill Street Blues. Pretty plus time slot if you ask me especially since Cheers is on the rise and Hill Street Blues is a known commodity at this point. On ABC, it went up against Masquerade, the first half hour of a one and a half hour installment of Masquerade. This might have hurt it, though, on CBS. The second half hour of Simon and Simon. But there is a positive side to this. If you would like to catch Buffalo Bill, it was released on DVD. Might need a little luck finding it because from what I could see, it was released in 2005. So it might be hard to find, especially since I'm guessing it's been out of circulation for probably 17 years at this point. I, I don't see a ton of audiences clamoring for 
Buffalo Bill on DVD. Any final thoughts, gentlemen? Some of the episodes can be uh, streamed for free on YouTube. I've actually watched a few of those episodes, and the writing was pretty clever. The acting was top-notch, and it was altogether a really good show with a lot of talent in front of and behind the cameras. Problem is, as we've seen many a times before, talent does not translate into ratings. You know, I wonder if this aired a year later or a year earlier, if possibly this would have survived longer. And also the same with Mr. Smith. Because, again, as we talked about last week, Mr. Smith, I think, was a perfectly enjoyable show. Very funny at times. Just the competition it went up against was killer. This show, brilliantly written, competition maybe not as bad as Mr. Smith's, but still it was short run, but really it deserved a longer life. The critics loved it. Maybe it's one of those things like it's the best show that nobody's watching, which I think is what people said about Cheers back in like 1982, 83. It's the best show you're not watching. And then a couple years later, people started watching it, and it's a classic. And again, Brandon Tartikoff, legendary genius at NBC, admitted that one of the worst decisions he made was canceling Buffalo Bill. Such is life, unfortunately. And Buffalo Bill may have been a favorite among the critics, wasn't necessarily a favorite among TV viewers, and it was a favorite of... Brandon Tartikoff's, but he has regrets. And for those reasons, sadly, Buffalo Bill is just a thing on TV. Wow! I'm Dabney Coleman. I'm all over me. Right on. Watch me on Mary Tyler Moore. Hi, Mary. Bill. That girl. Hi. Oh, Leon, am I glad to see you. The fugitive. A man named Kimball. He's wanted for murdering his wife. Cannon. Want to be his club sandwich? No, no thanks. Naked City. I want to ask somebody a question. I'm going to ask you a question. Watch me on me, me TV. You got it. Memorable entertainment television. If one of today's players wins $5,000, then today's superfan is going to win $500. Let's meet today's superfan right now. It is Mike Klaus from Wycliffe, Ohio. Hello, Mike. Hello, Melissa. Hi from the North Coast. Well, hello, North Coast. We're happy you're here. Thank you. So, Mike, you have your own podcast? Tell me about it. Yeah, myself and two friends of mine, we have a podcast. We've had it for about four years about obscure, forgotten, and short-lived TV shows. Oh, wow. I love it. What's it called? It's called It Was a Thing on TV. I used to, that's what people tell me. I was, I used to be a thing on TV. Um, so, Mike, what are some of the cool, what are some of the shows that you guys cover? Because I bet I would love them. Uh, we've never covered anything that you've been on, so that might be a good thing, since I, I mentioned short-lived shows. You're right. My, I've been lucky. I've had shows that have gone on a long, long time. Well, uh, I can't wait to listen to your podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us, and I hope that you get $500. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks for being here, Mike, and we'll, we'll check back with you very, very soon. Thank Bye. you very much. Bye-bye. I'm going to listen to your podcast. I love, I love podcasts. Episode 414, submission number 1354, The Slap Maxwell Story. The Slap Maxwell Story 
aired on ABC from September 23rd of 1987 to June 8th of 1988 for 22 episodes. That would be six more than the Husband Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Uncle Croc's Block, the number of aired episodes of Salvage One, J.J. Starbuck, and Schooled. And yes, I did that in one take. Yay, go me. And interestingly enough, the Slot Maxwell story premiered three days before J.J. Starbuck. Do you want to know what premiered the day before the Slot Maxwell story? So, let's see. I'm trying to remember what day Slat Maxwell aired. I think it was a Thursday, so what aired the Wednesday before then? Oh, no, it aired Wednesday, so what aired on the Tuesday before that? I Married Dora. <laughs> Second reference in two weeks to I Married Dora. How about some theme music? Okay, guys, we're going to do our second episode about Dabney Coleman this week. We talked about him in Buffalo Bill. Great show. Nobody watched. Got nominated for a lot of Emmys. Brandon Tartikoff regretted canceling it. Give him about three more years, and he would show up again on the Slap Maxwell story. A very similar character to Buffalo Bill, if you ask me. Slap Maxwell was a sports writer for a newspaper called The Ledger, and he had a bit of an ego. Boy, this does sound a lot like Buffalo Bill. The ego is running out of control. And The Ledger was an old-fashioned newspaper, and Slat Maxwell was just an old-fashioned man, and his column in this newspaper was called Slap Shots. Ha, ha, ha. And he still used a typewriter, even in 1987. It's a typewriter. And even though journalism can get sort of sketchy at times in terms of rumors and saying half-truths and starting rumors and stuff like that, Slap filled his columns with rumors and innuendo, which drew lawsuits and frequently resulted in Slap's termination. But, however, after every termination, he made apologies and got rehired. Boy, I wish I could do that at any job. Get fired, say I'm sorry. Hey, you got your job back. Not a bad gig if you can get that. And the name Slap Maxwell, the nickname Slap, it came from the fact that someone else always ended up hitting him in every episode. So he got slapped in every episode. So basically, he was the Chris Rock of this TV series. Too soon? Not soon enough. Okay. Just wanted to check. 
Now, Slap had an on-again, off-again relationship with somebody named Judy, one of the paper's secretaries. The series also featured Annie as Slap's ex-wife, who had a soft spot for him still. And we mentioned this in the Buffalo Bill episode. This was done by Jay Tarsus, who also did, in addition to Buffalo Bill, he did The Duck Factory, and he did Open All Night. So, again, he's getting people that he worked with and enjoys. And when we get to the cast, you're going to hear some names that we talked about previously, even as recently as Buffalo Bill on Monday. So we know who's playing Slap Maxwell. Dabney Coleman, we talked about him already. We talked about him being in 9 to 5, Tootsie. We talked about him being on Fernwood Tonight, Fernwood Forever, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He's been in a lot of things, primarily from the early-ish 80s, early to mid-80s. And, of course, I'll mention it again. He was in one of my favorite movies as a little kid, Cloak and Dagger. Now, playing Judy, the secretary we talked about, and this is a name we mentioned in Buffalo Bill is Megan Gallagher. And as we said in the Buffalo Bill episode, she was on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. She's been on NCIS. She's had a lengthy career, to say the least. She's been on a couple episodes of CSI, 24, Larry Sanders Show, China Beach. Again, a very lengthy, very diverse career. Playing Nelson Kruger, who is Slap Maxwell's boss, is Brian Smyre. Primarily a movie actor, he was in Regarding Henry, The Next Karate Kid, The Great Debaters, and The Royal Tenenbaums. Then playing the Dutchman in this series, and that's the name he's given. It's not a nickname. He is called The Dutchman, is Bill Cobbs. And again, he's done a little bit of everything. He was in That Thing You Do. He's been on an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's still active nowadays, even though he's approaching 90 years old. He was on 10 episodes of Go On, or if you remember that uh, weekend update sketch with Seth MacFarlane, Goon. I thought Greg would have something to say about that because oh. I know he loves that sketch. Oh, yeah. Seth MacFarlane is Ryan Lochte. <laughs> I was watching this TV show, and then they, all of a sudden there were these mini-sodes in the show. Oh, those are commercials. Oh, that makes sense. I was in a bunch of those. <laughs> so what are some of the new shows you're excited about? I, the first one's called Monkey Hospital. <laughs> It's a show about a monkey in a hospital. It's, it's so funny. Well, I think you mean animal practice. Yeah, the monkey's so funny. It's, 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 not, I mean, it's not fair they give all the best lines to the monkey. I, I give it three swims. Uh, out of how many? Three. Okay. So what other new shows do you like? Uh, I'm really excited about that show, Goon. Oh, no, no, no. 
That's actually go on. It's two words. Ah, uh, okay. It's it's either way. It looks really go odd. No, that's good. That's that's one word. Uh, okay. Uh, I give I give it six swims. Okay. That's good. That really was one of the better episodes of SNL in the past like ten years. Seth MacFarlane, especially as Ryan Lochte. Oh, you know what was great in that episode? That puppet sketch with Bill Hader as the veteran. Doing oh, puppetry. no. Yeah, that's great. I know what you're talking about. That is a classic. Yes. Again, great episode. And playing Charlie Wilson in this series is Bill Calvert. And Bill Calvert's another person you've seen different places. Uh, he was in Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. What role do you play in those movies? In Spider-Man, he played a fireman. And in Spider-Man 2, he played a train passenger. Okay. Oh, yeah, the train passenger, that one scene where uh, Peter's trying to stop the train from Doc Ock. Okay. You know about it? I don't. I'm just going to shake my head and move on. But, yeah, he's had a lengthy career and uh, quite a diverse career, to say the least. And playing Annie, who we talked about as Slap's ex-wife, is Susan Anspach. Not with us anymore. She passed away in 2018. She was in five easy pieces. And again, another person who just did like a little bit of everything. She did the Hitchhiker back in the 80s. The Devil and Max Devlin. I don't think we've ever mentioned that. She was in an episode of McMillan and Wife. No, it wasn't the one where McMillan's mom gets uh, abducted. Sorry, Greg. And two episodes of the Patty Duke show. So, yeah, she had a lengthy and diverse career as well. Talking about episodes is going to be really tough. Even though this series has been out for 35 years, nobody has created a real accurate episode guide. And even the episode guides we have, they don't have episode titles. And I think this is the first time we've ever run into this conundrum where not only are we missing descriptions, but we don't even have episode titles. So we're just going to have to say episode one, episode two, episode three. So I apologize that we don't have episode titles, but you know, again, for a show that was kind of critically acclaimed, there's not a lot of information about this show. Episode one is the pilot, and we don't even have a plot for that. Well, according to Truth by Algorithm Google, lawsuits force Nelson to fire Slap from sports. Well, we talked about that. We talked about him getting sued and libel and untrue rumors and all that. So not surprising. And actually, in that pilot episode, the ratings that night were very high. I don't have numbers in terms of where it ranked. But it looks like the rating was 18.2, as high as it ever was. And you'll notice a downward trend as we move on. So I think we know why the show didn't last more than a season, even though, again, the critics wrote good things about it. In this episode, playing Bavaria, she played a country, Bavaria. I'm guessing it's like Florida. My name is the same as a state. Was Joe Marie Payton. 
Give her about three, four years. She'll find a show that she uh, will succeed on. But no, we've talked about her in the past because she was on Red Fox's comedy hour, the the Red Fox show after Sanford and Son left. But yeah, we all know Joe Marie Payton as Harriet Winslow. Nothing else really needs to be said. That will take us to episode two. Again, no name. Slap comes to the frightening realization that many people want to get him. Slap reminisces and sees, among other things, an estranged wife and an angry dog are gaining on him. Isn't that one and the same? An estranged uh, wife and an angry dog? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Again, humble reminder. I'm single, everybody. Surprise. So no names of note in the cast, but check out the director, legendary director Peter Baldwin. Did everything from the Brady Bunch to Small Wonder. Episode 3. We don't even have a capsule for this one. So we can't even really talk about what happened there. I got it. Truth by algorithm, Google. Nelson hires Slap's old nemesis as a sports writer. Brogan, said nemesis, played by Francis X. McCarthy... Who played Dr. Kaiser in Basketball? That was a great movie. Still active today. He was in NCIS and Dear White People. Episode 4. Slap decides to take his low self-esteem on a basketball court, but his one-on-one challenger is a woman with amazing court powers. So since this is 1987, I'm guessing that female with the amazing basketball powers must be Cheryl Miller. Yeah, but she's not in this episode, though. But she would have been, like, really big in 1987. So, yeah, she wasn't in the episode, but I'm going to assume a female in 1987 that has amazing basketball powers and presence. It's got to be Cheryl Miller. Can't be Lisa Leslie, because she would have probably been in middle school at this point. And it's, like, way after, uh, like, uh, Ann Myers. So... We'll say Cheryl Miller, even though it's not Cheryl Miller. And actually, we do have a name for probably the woman in this episode with the skills on the court. Given just the name woman, Laura Zane, not really known for much of anything. Just wanted to throw that out there just to put a name to the uh, character who has basketball skills. Episode 5. Slap shows an uncharacteristic streak of sensitivity when he saves a newsboy's life. Playing Eddie in this episode, he may not be a newsboy because he would have been 40 years old at this point, is Jeff Doucette. And I know we've talked about him in the past. Don't remember where, but I do recall that he was on Newhart. I see the face. I can tell you he was on Newhart, uh, specifically the latter episodes. He did play Harley Eston on 16 episodes of New Heart. So, yeah, I knew we talked about him on New Heart, but also he was on E slash R as Bert the Paramedic on six episodes. We talked about him on Aftermath. We talked about him on Domestic Life. We also talked about him on Davis Rules. He also played Twinkles the Clown on Shasta McNasty. So this is like the sixth time we're talking about him. He played a clown on Shasta McNasty. 
I can't believe we're actually talking about somebody who was on Shasta McNasty. I'm sorry. But yeah, we've talked about him. I'm guessing this is the sixth time from what I can tell. Not saying Hall of Famer, but again, very diverse career. That will take us to episode six. Slap goes toe-to-toe with his long-estranged wife, despite his misguided efforts to get them together again. Episode seven. Slap shows a streak of compassion when he helps his girlfriend Judy and Charlie, the copy boy, through rough times. Episode eight. We actually have an episode title for this in the next three shows, but we don't have a capsule unless Chico could dig one up. This episode is called Nelson Considers Selling the Paper. Slap recognizes the ledger's prospective buyer as a con artist. (gasps) A con artist? Didn't we have this issue on Buffalo Bill? Maybe not as a con artist, but somebody was buying the TV station. And said con artist, Arlen Porterfield, man by the name of Lawrence Tierney, is playing that. He's a Hollywood tough. He played Dillinger in 1945's Dillinger. He was in 1947's Born to Kill. He was in Reservoir Dogs as Joe Cabot. Chico, I have the best credit of all. This is the defining credit. Want you to hear me out. You're talking about the Tufts. He was Don Brodka on an episode of The Simpsons. That may not ring a bell. However, if I mention it was the episode where Bart shoplifted a video game and he was the investigator in the store that uh, took him right before the family got their Christmas photo taken, now you know who he is. What a great episode of The Simpsons that was, especially the putting challenge video game. Lee Carvalho. Oh, but, you know, Bart really wanted that Bone Storm video game. You know what he said? Buy me Bone Storm or go to hell. Well, I'm guessing hell has Lee Carvalho's putting challenge. Oh, and by the way, if you've never seen it, there actually is a version you can play online. I mean, there's nothing to it, but it's hilarious. Episode 9, the title I have is The Story That Got Away. Judy fills in as advice columnist. And Charlie's dog dies. Aww. Somebody in this episode that we talked about on a previous episode, Bill Morey. No character name, it just says Bill Morey. We talked about him in previous entry, Tucker's Witch. Episode 10 is called Judy's High School Reunion. Judy asks Slap to her high school reunion. Oh, that's really creative. And actually, if you take a look at who directed this episode, Anson Williams. Potsy. Yes. And as a matter of fact, I just recently got in the mail a card from 2009 Donruss Americana, a swatch card signed by Anson Williams. And Mike, do you want to tell the audience how much I paid for it? I don't remember. $3.99. Oh, that's a bargain. Wow. What is it numbered out of, if you remember? 57 out of 100. For $4? Wow. That was a good pickup. Episode 11 is called My Son the Writer. Slap has difficulty criticizing Elliot's writing. So Elliot is played by Joseph Brutzman. Not much of an actor. 
more of a behind the scenes type of person. And even for the shows that he worked on, really not many of them are well known. I mean, one that is, is my 600 pound wife, senior story producer on that. But he was on seven episodes of Slap Maxwell Story and also seven episodes of Scarecrow and Mrs. King. And he was on an episode of The Duck Factory. So there's the J. Tarsus tie-in again. Episode 12. Now we're going back to episodes where I don't have any titles. Slap's latest problems include Judy's romantic interest in a fighter pilot and his estranged wife's desire to shoot him. Seems a bit extreme. Wants to shoot him. Okay. Episode 13. Rather than bask in the glory of being named Sports Writer of the Year, Slap decides to ruin the lives of the women who love him. Going on to episode 14, again, just a title, Slap Goes Home. Slap gives a Marine a ride and winds up back home in Texas. We have a big name in this episode. I wonder if this is switched because... I didn't see many females in the previous episode, and that one was about the women in his life uh, that he uh, decides to ruin the lives of the women who love him. And there are multiple women in this episode, the most popular of whom portrayed Kitty, the one and only legendary Shirley Jones. I don't know if we necessarily have to say who Shirley Jones is, but I think we should just in case, in case we have anybody younger than a certain age, the Partridge family. That's really all you need to know. Go watch some Partridge family from the early 70s. She was Shirley Partridge. She was the matriarch. But also previously married to Marty Ingalls. Married a long time until his death in 2015. And actually, Chico, do you remember back in 2006? At the What's My Line Live at the hotel in Burbank, she was the mystery guest, her and Marty Engels. I do remember. And it was hilarious. But I'm not mistaken, Gordon Pepper was also a contestant on that one. And Marty Engels and Shirley Jones were hilarious, especially Marty Engels. Funny guy, and you may remember him as Pac-Man in the Pac-Man Saturday morning cartoon back in the early 80s. I love Pac-Man, the cartoon series. And then that theme music got used in the Pac-Land video game. Oh, I love that. The show lives on in some capacity. Episode 15. Slap finds old memories and love while Judy and Charlie's relationship grows. And Shirley Jones reprises her role as Kitty in this episode. Episode 16. Again, another title. No capsule. Slap's father. Slap visits his ailing father, and Nelson replaces Slap with a woman. His father, Stan Maxwell, played by John McIntyre. John McIntyre, most notable for playing the sheriff in the 1960 version of Psycho, played the voice of Rufus in The Rescuers, but played Amos Reed in Turner and Hooch, the movie not the series. And that was actually his last credited role because he died in 1991. Very sad. And he was also in a number of Westerns back in the day. He was on 152 episodes of Wagon Train 
And he was also in 65 episodes of The Virginian. And he was in Cloak and Dagger with Daphne Coleman. That's beautiful. Episode 17. Slap substitute, a crack female reporter, may become his permanent replacement. Episode 18. Insult is added to injury when Slap returns to the ledger, only to find his desk has been taken over by a hard-nosed female columnist. We're going to move on to episode 19. Slap and Judy resume their relationship, and Slap writes a juicy piece on his replacement at the ledger. Playing Buddy Ralston, Sandy McPeak. He was in two episodes of Centennial from 1979, 11 episodes of The Gallant Men from 1962, four episodes of L.A. Law, playing two different people, and 23 episodes of Days of Our Lives. Episode 20, Slap offends a female Soviet tennis player in a hard-hitting interview. We have a big name in this episode playing a TV reporter. Maurice LaMarche. Where should we start with him? I think we could talk about all the voices on Futurama. We could talk about the brain on Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs. He is a veritable legend. And he did a week of wordplay in 1987. And he does a killer Orson Welles. Well, yeah, he did that too on The Critic, yes. Rosebud. Yes, Rosebud Frozen Peas. Full of country goodness and green penis. Wait, that's terrible. I quit. Just a handful for the road. Oh, what luck. There's a French fry stuck in my beard. Oh, yeah. Just a handful for the road. But yeah, I mean, so many voices for Futurama. Lur, Morbo. I mean, these are pivotal characters in the Futurama universe has done everything. That's all you can say. He's done everything. He actually played Inspector Gadget in the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. I think we talked about him there, yes. That's going to take us to the penultimate episode. Slaps at a loss for words when Judy asks him for something not included in his vocabulary. Commitment. And that'll take us to the last episode. Slap and Judy take up residence in Slap's motel room. We have the return of Joseph Brutzman and Shirley Jones as Elliot Maxwell and Kitty, respectively, but playing Annie's lawyer straight from Perfect Strangers, Belita Moreno. She played Lydia, the uh, gossip columnist for the Chronicle, the one who's afraid of cameras. And that's the series. If we take a look at the schedule... Maybe that might paint a little bit of a picture as to what happened. Slap Maxwell was in a pretty good position on Wednesday nights. The lineup on ABC was actually pretty strong at this point. Perfect Strangers, this would have been season three, if I remember correctly. Uh, Head of the Class would have been in season two. Then you had Hooperman at nine, the John Ritter series then slap Maxwell at 9.30, and then Dynasty to end the night. So you really have a solid lineup there, maybe outside of the 9 o'clock hour, because obviously Perfect Strangers lasted seven, eight seasons, Head of the Class lasted four or five seasons, and Dynasty, that ran basically throughout the 80s. 
but the competition now this is early october of 1987 and i think that's all i need to say about one of the possible things that it went up against the american league championship series on nbc game one so who would that have been uh that would have been twins for sure because they won the world series in 87 and the tigers they won the al east in 87 okay yeah, I'm sorry. You're not beating Kirby Puckett. You're not beating Kent Herbeck. No, that's not working. And then on CBS in the 9 o'clock hour, if you needed another death blow, Magnum P.I. So, yeah, it just didn't bode too well early on for Slap Maxwell. But here's the thing, Mike. You mentioned the ALCS. I will see your ALCS and raise you the World Series because ABC had the World Series that year. Yeah, but still, it went up against the ALCS. Usually if you interrupt a run with something like the World Series, you have trouble getting some of the viewers back. Yeah, it happened with O'Hara. That got interrupted by the World Series too in 87. And actually, in the normal... 9 to 10 p.m. slot on NBC, it would have gone up against the second half hour of A Year in the Life. Which is ironic because that's exactly how long it lasted. Looking at other schedules throughout 1987 and 1988, it seems like wherever it aired, whether it was in original airings or reruns, it always ran up against something. I'm looking at February 3rd of 1988, which is a Wednesday. And there's no sign of Magnum P.I. now. Yes, you have a year in the life on NBC, but the second half hour on CBS, this is a series we're going to talk about next year. John Barber's son's favorite TV show in 1987 and 88, Frank's Place. And what was his favorite character, Mike? Well, John Barber called him Shoddy LaRue, but his name was Shorty LaRue. Shoddy <laughs> My son's favorite character from my son's favorite show he plays, Shoddy LaRue, and Frank's place, Don Yeso. But also taking a look in May of 88, this must be a rerun at this point because this is on a Friday. Again, 9.30. It went up against the second half hour of The Highwayman. But it's Friday night, it's CBS, it's the 80s. What's airing at 9 o'clock? It's Dallas! And there's no way you're beating that. Yeah, it was up against the second half hour of Dallas. And if this is May of 88, it's got to be nearing the end of that season. In March of 88, I see a new lineup which again has Slap Maxwell at 9.30 p.m. And again, going up against Year in the Life. But now, what's it going up against? How about Jake and the Fat Man? So it's going up against Jake and the Fat Man and Frank's Place and Magnum P.I. and Dallas. And maybe we know why it didn't get a second season. Just saying. America wanted to know if Fat Man had a problem with cheese. And why didn't Slap Maxwell write an article about it? Could have been in the health section of the newspaper. You never know. And, oh, look at this. July of 88. 
the equalizer so again it can't get away from decent shows on cbs so yeah i think uh, that competition on cbs just show after show after show just pounded it into oblivion this is another may of 1988 a friday night between two movies okay so there wasn't a dallas this week i saw what you did but I'm sorry, it's not beating NBC's movie that it aired that week. Rambo First Blood Part 2. You're not beating John Rambo. No. And again, this is a good lineup. Perfect Strangers, Full House, Mr. Belvedere, Slap Maxwell, 2020. Solid lineup for 1988. So yeah, it just seems wherever it went, it was getting pounded in the ratings. And actually, speaking of ratings, I do have numbers. Not all the numbers, but a few of the numbers. And yeah, this is not good. This is from the second week of February in 1988. 48 shows aired. Guess where Slap Maxwell ended up? 41st. No. 44th. Nope, right at the bottom, 48th. Oh. Early December of 87, it was 33rd out of 51 shows so again bottom third not great but not dead last early october 37th out of 70 shows so just about right smack dab in the middle and the week of halloween october 26th to november 1st of 87 out of 61 shows 61st it was dead last again well, again, we said the competition, whether it's baseball or whether it's whatever was on CBS that night, just absolutely pummeled the Slap Maxwell story. Again, the critics loved it. I was reading reviews earlier and they said this is the next big show for Dabney Coleman. He can't fail. Well, didn't they say that about Buffalo Bill? And well, it wasn't his fault that they failed. It's basically Brent Tartikoff's fault, kind of, sort of, because he said he regretted it. And, uh, yeah, it was in a tough spot because all the new shows that were coming aboard NBC in 1984 and just didn't make the cut. But there's a good takeaway here because Dabney Coleman did get nominated for lead actor in a comedy series at the Emmys that year in 1988. So did John Ritter and Hooperman. So did Tim Reed and Frank's Place. It must have been a really weak year for lead actors in a comedy series. I don't see Mr. Black on there. You had Ted Danson, Michael J. Fox, and then Tim Reed, John Ritter, Dabney Coleman. We're going to cover it. We'll eventually cover it. We just covered it. So what else is there to add about the Slap Maxwell story besides just another series that Dabney Coleman succeeded in but just didn't get enough eyes. It had, again, the love of the critics. And unfortunately, you end up at the bottom of the ratings quite often. You're going to just end up being a thing on TV. Wow! What is the five fingers? Say to the face! <laughs> what? Slap! Episode 415. Submission 1264. Drexel's Glass. Drexel's Class aired on Fox from September 19th, 1991 to March 5th of 1992. 
for 18 episodes. And that is two more episodes than Uncle Croc's Block, The Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, J.J. Storbuck, the number of aired episodes of Salvage 1, and Schooled. Mighty impressive. Well done, Greg. And now here's the theme song they introduced around episode 8. Okay, guys, this is the finale of this special themed block of shows. And I got to say, I remember when this was originally on the air. And I remember that they put this like on Thursday nights at 830 on Fox with a killer lead in and a killer lead out program. You had the Simpsons at eight and then 90210 at nine and then this at 830. So it's like, how can this show lose? You have two big hits at the time for Fox. You have The Simpsons, and you have 90210. And you have Dabney Coleman. You're thinking, okay, he's had bad luck twice. Buffalo Bill, unfortunately, got canceled because Brandon Tartikoff regretted canceling it. The Slot Maxwell story, everyone said, this is going to be a hit. Can't lose. And then, no didn't so what happens this time well on Drexel's class Dabney Coleman plays a corporate raider who lost a lot of money and dodged his taxes and is offered a suspended sentence to work as a teacher at a school of fifth graders now, Mike, I'm sure in your line of work, this happens all the time. You happen to have a lot of deadbeats in the corporate world who work at your school, correct? Oh, yeah. That's all the teachers are in my school are felons getting weird adjusted sentences. Yeah. Uh-huh. I remember when I was in college and Bertie Madoff taught my financial class. What? Bernie Madoff taught your financial class? I know. It was so weird. I don't even know how to react to that. Oh, my gosh. I'm kidding. How the heck did I know? I thought you were being real. (laughs) No. Well, first off, I was going to say, I didn't know you went to college. But second. Wait, you didn't know I went to college? I have two college degrees, Mike. I did not know this. Seriously, I did not know this. I did not know you went to college. But also, <laughs> have you I, ever I was... looked? Hold on, time out. Have you ever looked at my Facebook wall? It says right there in the about section: "Graduated Suffolk County Community College, 2009. Graduated Dallin College, RIP by the way, 2012." Hold on, I'm actually doing live research. Not kidding. It says studied at. It does not say graduated from. 
Oh, same thing. Studied it, graduated. I have two degrees. Okay, one requires completion. The other, you just went to school. Well, also, one of your degrees was an associate's degree. One was an undergrad, right? I got a sports management degree at Dell in college. Okay, but still, one was an associate's and one was an undergrad, correct? Correct. All right. You both have one more degree than I have. Okay, but also, I was going to say, I have an undergraduate degree and a master's degree, so I'm not flexing about degrees here, but I didn't know you graduated from college or even went to college. And I'm sorry, the whole Bernie Madoff thing, I seriously bought that because we're... Do you live? Where did you go to school? You lived in and uh, went to school in the New York City area. So it totally rates that Bertie Madoff may have taught some sort of like econ class. Maybe not very well, but it rates to me. I find it scary that you thought I was being serious there. I seriously did. I, I really thought you were being 100% serious there. All right. Well. The bottom line is, Daddy Coleman's playing Otis Drexel, and he is a divorced man who has two daughters. And he figures, you know what, I might as well teach this class full of these brats and try to teach them the way that life really works. Isn't that right, Chico? Yeah, school of hard knocks in the fifth grade, baby. But as a way of getting out of his jail sentence, because if you are convicted of tax fraud which Otis Drexel was you go to jail it could be you know minimum security club bed it could be Oz do you honestly want to take your chances no Otis Drexel decided let me dust out my teaching certificate and go back to school but like you said Greg Drexel was not teaching by the book. He was teaching from the school of life. School of hard knocks. Me, find me. That sort of thing. He was teaching these kids reality. He was teaching them how to use their street smarts. So aside from his class, we have his principal, who loathes him, and... His best friend, who is a gym teacher. And then there's somebody who one of his daughters is dating. But we'll get to that later. Right now, let's talk about the cast, shall we? We already know about Otis Drexel, Daphne Coleman. What more can we say about him? Buffalo Bill, he was an ornery TV star. Slapbacks, well, he was an ornery sports writer. Now he's an ornery teacher. His rival, Roscoe Davis, who is a fellow teacher in his own right, played by Dakin Matthews, who is still with us, known for playing Colonel Cochran in Child's Play 3. Ooh, Child's Play 3. Josie in the 2023 version of Waitress. I didn't even know that there was going to be a 2023 version of Waitress. Yeah, it's the one based on the musical. Ah. Like, The Color Purple was a film before it was a musical, and then it's going to be a musical? Yeah. He was in the reboot of True Grit in 2010. Ooh. 
He was Bob Eisenstadt in Brain Dead, future entry there. What the hell is Brain Dead? Washington, D.C. is full of zombies. Oh. So it's nonfiction. <laughs> well, it's not happened yet, but when you're listening to this, there probably is a government shutdown going on right now. Nope. Fun fact, Dakin Matthews originated the role of Mickey in Rocky the Musical. You're gonna eat lightning and crap thunder. Playing the elder daughter, Melissa Drexel, A.J. Langer, who was best known for Is This Gonna Be a Future Entry? My So-Called Life. Uh, maybe? I don't know. I don't think so. I, do, I don't think so, just because, yeah, it was short-lived, but it is so critically acclaimed. Maybe in the same class as, say, a Freaks and Geeks. Critically loved, still on reruns nowadays. I am going to say probably a don't cover just because I don't want to poo-poo on like a real classic short-lived show. This definitely is a future entry. She was in all 26 episodes of It's Like, You Know? Oh yeah, that Jennifer Grey show. I think it's a better name, that Jennifer Grey show. I like that name. I like it a lot. That would have been a much better name. Playing the younger daughter, Brenda Trexel, Brittany Murphy. Oh. You miss Brittany Murphy. I miss Brittany Murphy a lot. It was like a really interesting like HBO Max documentary about like her death. It was like a weird... You gotta watch it after this episode, if you're listening to this. It's a weird-ass way everything that turned out. Ugh. It sucks how everything turned out. Yeah. You can still hear her on uh, reruns of King of the Hell on Adult Swim. And FXX. Then we have the rest of the class. Playing Willie Trankus, Jason Biggs from American Pie. Y'all know what he was best known for in American Pie in that movie. I wasn't even thinking you guys were going to go there. You know what the first thing popped in my mind was when you said Jason Biggs? Cherry's Wild. Wild. I swear to God. It's Future installment, Cherry's Wild. (laughs) off of Cherry's Wild. Cherry's Wild isn't a game show. Cherry's Wild is a 30-minute commercial for a soft drink. F that. And it's not even really a game show because it was scripted in the end, essentially. Wait, it was? If you read the credits, it said that like every tape day, one team was assigned to get the possibility of like the five cherries or whatever the the whole thing is. So it wasn't necessarily by chance per se, where it was RNG that determined the results. Somebody each tape date got five cherries. They didn't know which one. So that's not really truly random if you think about it. Does that make sense? I mean, from a statistical standpoint, from from a a logical mathematical standpoint, yeah, that's not a true random game. Like if you're doing a slot machine or if you did press your luck where that's truly random. Talking about press your luck after they got rid of the patterns. 
But yeah, when you say that somebody's going to have the possibility at the top prize in every tape date, I mean, there's a random sense, you know, in terms of, you know, which of the five people or five teams or five shows is going to have that top prize possibility, but still it's not truly random. I'm getting off my soapbox. Basically, you say you'd rather see him hump a pie instead of roasting Cherry's Wild. Well, I think you heard Chico's reaction when he said, don't say Cherry's Wild, don't say Cherry's Wild, don't say Cherry's Wild, and I said Cherry's Wild. That's all you really needed to know. Would I rather see him hump an apple pie? Wouldn't it be funny if it was a cherry pie and not an apple pie? Just saying. Oh dear. Cherry's Wild Pie. But anyhow, yes, I will take American Pie... 11 times out of 10 over Cherry's Wild. So we also have a classmate named Walker, played by Matthew Lawrence. Oh, you know what that means. Hi, Joey. How you doing? Whoa. Whoa. There we go. And playing Nicole Finnegan, Heidi Ziegler from Future Entry Rags to Riches. And from never going to be covered on this podcast, just the ten of us. We're not going to cover that. That was good? Yeah. It was very good. It sort of falls in the same category as Freaks and Geeks and uh, my so-called life, even though maybe not as legendary. And now we go to Principal Francine Itkin, who is Drexel's mortal enemy, played by Randy Graff. I'm not going to say that they're mortal enemies, but she has a lot of contempt for Mr. Drexel. But uh, Randy Graff, she was in Rent in 2005. She wait, was... wait, 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 wait. Yeah, say it, Greg. I was going to say it, but I'm going to let you have the honors. I got to tell you something. I bet you when Crystal Bernard went to the movie theater in 2005, she said, I want one ticket to see Rant. I will see Rant. I want to see Rant. I want to see Rant. But yeah, aside from that, she wasn't in a lot of regular series work. She was basically a that woman from that thing. But she would be replaced by Principal Marilyn Ridge, played by future It Was a Thing Hall of Famer, Edie McClurg. So she went from being the secretary to being the principal. Oh, Mr. Rooney. Yeah, we're not going to mention that again in another episode this week. Why would we? Which means expected on Thursday. (laughs) And then we have two more people in the cast playing George Foster, the gym teacher, Cleavant Derricks. Of course, we'd see him later on on every single episode of... uh, podcast favorite at least of greg and myself sliders just the first three seasons just don't watch past season three anything involving charlie o'connell you can skip yeah oh but speaking of guys guys i gotta mention this if you can find jerry o'connell's recent appearance on pardon my take jerry talks about how he was watching hard knocks he talks about this with pft and big cat and he talks about the scene, this past season of Hard Knocks, where 
Robert Saul is talking about like crows or something. Uh, that first speech that Robert Sala had, um, you know, that's the that's the opening to Hard Knocks. And so Robert Sala comes out, good looking guy. And he says, uh, let me tell you something about Eagles. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, God, he's making an Eagles reference. Like, I don't know if that's really appropriate. Let, let me tell you something about Eagles. When they get attacked by crows. And I was like, oh, fuck, the Jets are the crows. Yes. The Jets are just going to peck. The Eagles, and we're just going to keep pecking, and the Jets are going to just keep pecking till they're at the fucking Super Bowl. And he was like, an eagle flies up, and the crow dies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, let's get out there. And I was like, God. What the hell was that? And the way he describes the scene, I literally said out loud, what the f- it's Robert Sala talking about. It gives you a sense between that and his stupid ass press conferences where he's like, oh, Zach Wilson is great. Where it's like, this guy needs to be in a fucking loody bin. And this has been Greg roasts the shit out of Robert Sala for being a terrible head coach. Man, I'm going to need to do a lot of censoring there. Oh, hey, we did talk about Cleavon Derricks previously because he was in an episode of 18 Wheels of Justice. Nice. That's right. But also, we talked about him in Good Sports. But we only care about 18 Wheels of Justice. Sorry. Yeah, but he played Jeff Musburger on Good Sports, which was totally not a dig on Brent Musburger, who got fired from CBS the year before. Totally not a dig. It totally was. And rounding out the cast is Slash, who works at a uh, convenience store that Otis conveniently patronized and also dated one of the daughters. Yeah, he dated the oldest daughter, the one who's not Brittany Murphy. He's played by Phil Buckman, who was not only an actor, he was also the bassist for Filter from... 2010 to 2013, and the basis for Fuel from 2015 to 2021. So yeah, he looked the part, he played the part, he was the part. Fun fact, Greg. Oh? He performs voices in the Spider-Man 3 video game. Oh, the Spider-Man 3 video game. Well, it's not as good as Spider-Man 2, because you know why? Pizza time. You see, Mike, you have to play the Spider-Man 2 video game to understand the magic of pizza time. I'm still trying to conquer the Spider-Man video game on the Atari 2600. Look, Mike, Spider-Man 2 is coming out. You have an excuse to get a PS5. It's an amazing game. Go get it. I'm just saying. Excuse me, my money has been earmarked to go towards Allen and Ginter baseball cards. Thank you very much. Well, that's fair. Speaking of, since the people uh, listening to this didn't uh, see what I posted the other night, I did buy two more boxes, and one of them had all foil cards, which is absolutely amazing. All short prints, 
But the even more amazing thing is in that box, I got an autographed card of Bun B, who we talked about in before the show last week. Bun B. Bun B. Well, I got a Brett Beatty mini rookie card in one of my boxes of Allen and Ginter last week. So it's a fun break. If you're into cards, go buy it. If you want those Bun B autographs. Bun B. Hey, it goes for good money on eBay. I made at least my money back on the uh, box that I bought once I sell it. So that's our cast. So let's go ahead with the episodes. Episode one, Otis's last day. Principal Itkin evaluates Drexel with the hope of firing him. She does not like that man. No. We got a name on this episode. Playing Rosie, Julie McCullough. Oh, yeah. Because she was involved in like a little incident the year before on another show, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, a lot of you listening know what the controversy is, so we're not going to say it. Because nope. this person is a bad man. He's a bad man. Episode 2, Air Drexel. Gee, I wonder what this is in reference to in 1991. Mr. Drexel and Mr. Davis both have a basketball tournament with their class and a bet on the side to win the chance to take an attractive nurse out on a date. Ooh. But, okay, guys. Mr. Drexel has this one person on his team who he figures, okay, I'm going to totally win this basketball game against Mr. Davis's class. It's all going to turn out well. And then he breaks his leg. And then oh my god. Mr. Drexel says to Mr. Davis, oh I think we should like postpone this game like another three to four weeks. And well I'm going to play this clip here and Mr. Drexel is going to make a comment that in 1991, and even 32 years later, I'm like, oh, dear God, I can't believe he went there with this. So here we go. <laughs> the point, Roscoe, is that in the spirit of fair play, I think we ought to just postpone our little basketball game. Three or four weeks. Give your kids a chance to practice so it won't be a rout. Sounds good. I'll take it. Uh, we could really use the extra time. So we say oh, yes. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If Otis is offering this, I'm not buying. What? Hey, Mr. Drexel, you don't have to take me home. My mom's going to come pick me up. Nurse Duvall said I'll be able to play in about three or four weeks. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> That's funny, Oscar. This little joker. He idolizes Bo Jackson, okay? He's walking around on his crutches all the time. <laughs> Mike's reaction says it all. Did they really make a joke about Bo Jackson and his injury playing for the Raiders back in, like, was it 90 or so? 91 playoffs, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's savage. I do have a name. And there's maybe, like, one or two roles that people may know him from. But I mentioned this name because... Recently, I've been listening to a lot of Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. Uh, they're doing encore episodes because obviously Gilbert's not with us anymore. 
And I was listening to the episode with Ronnie Shell this week, and this guy's name was mentioned. Art LaFleur. He plays Mike in this episode. And the one place that I think Greg particularly would know Art LaFleur from is he was Chick Gandal in Field of Dreams. First baseman. Yeah, and I think we did mention him in an episode recently, but hold on a second. I think he was in another baseball movie if you look up on his IMDb, Mike. Yeah, The Sandlot. He played the babe. Legends never die, kid. And playing said nurse, Nurse Duval, as uh, the man mentioned in the clip, Natasha Pavlovich, she was in a lot of things. She was that hot lady from that thing. But she was in another series. She was in something called Bitter Fruit from 2008 and 2009. Bitter Fruit, huh? Bitter Fruit. Oh, bitter Fruit indeed. <laughs> it was not made in America, by the way. Oh. I believe that would have been made in her native Serbia. Because she's Serbian-American, you see. Oh, okay. Also, I'm going to add three things. First, she was on an episode of Wings in 1995. Second and third, we've covered shows she's been on previously. She was on an episode of The Monsters Today. And her absolute first IMDb credit, believe it or not, she was on an episode of What a Country. What a I Country. I want to be an American. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was going to do the spoken word version of the theme, but I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do. I want to be an American. Here in America, it's right for me. Oh, episode three, guys. Misery loves Drexel. Drexel has a new student in his class, Mitchell, who starts out to idolize him. However, Drexel doesn't take to him so. As a result, Mitchell ends up torturing Drexel to death and playing Mitchell. Oh, man. In 1991, he was the most mischievous little bastard of them all at this time. Michael Oliver. Problem child himself. Junior Healy. And Chico, in this episode, Michael Oliver tortures the shit out of Dabney Coleman. You know what this means? What does this mean? It's time for another round of uh, Is This Typecasting? Yes. This has been Is This Typecasting? Back to you, Greg. But, oh my god. The scene where he ties him up and he's pouring like sugar on him. He has the ants for the ant farm trying to eat him with the sugar. And he has firecrackers. He's going to light him on fire. He's going to light Drexel on fire. Look, you're in big trouble, my man. Now cut the nonsense. Go get some help. What have we done here? Mitchell, what are you doing? Look, you know it's not nice to scare poor old Mr. Drexel, right? Ah! Oh, Lord. Grandpa Grammar. Grandpa doesn't like you very much. Yeah. He wants to squeeze your nose. No, he doesn't. He doesn't want to do that. I talked to him earlier. 
I'm not going to humor you anymore, Mitchell. Grandpa! Stop it, sir. Right, Grandpa, listen to me. Mr. Davis has been looking for you all day long. We're tired of Mr. Davis. We don't want to play with you. I'll tell you what, Mitchell. You know, in the nurse's office, there's a jar there of the best-tasting candy. They're called Thorazines. Nice try, Cheech. Oh, creep. Oh. Oh, I forgot. I'm the blackboard monitor. Oh. And these erasers look like they could use a good cleaning. What are you doing behind my back, you little... Oh. Beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, huh, Mr. This man must be stopped. He also burns his kitchen because Drexel uses him as a slave. No, this actually is what happened. Mr. Drexel hates him so much, he uses him as a slave because he wants to get rid of him. Episode 4, Love Walked Right In and Swept Mr. Drexel Away. Now, I don't have a capsule on IMDb, so Chico, do you have the capsule? From Truth by Algorithm Google, the kids give Otis a makeover when he falls for a new colleague. Oh my. I could definitely see where he would fall for this new colleague. Playing Helen Selwyn. Nana Visitor from Deep Space Nine. Oh. Oh, not just Deep Space Nine. I'm sorry. One role that I remember her from was Family Guy. She was like a 50-year-old girlfriend of Brian Griffin, the dog. This is uh, like 14 years ago. And just like everybody in the family was ragging on this woman because of her age. And <laughs> that's what I remember her from. Brian's got a brand new bag. Not the only voice that she did on Family Guy. She did do the voice of Quagmire's sister, Brenda. We do have another name, though, believe it or not. In this episode, playing Mary Finnegan is an actress we've talked about in the past named Arlene Galanka. She's been in many movies. But the main reason I mention her... I need to actually, like, catch my breath here for a moment because... This is going to be an emotional moment for me. She was on at least one week of the new Liars Club. Was she on with Shucky Haru? No, she wasn't. No. She wasn't on that week. I've seen episodes from that week, and I don't remember who she was with. She might have been with, like, uh, James Doohan, I think. James Doohan, uh, obviously... You would have had John Barber, and I forget who the other female was. Was it Shannon Tweed? No, it wasn't Shannon Tweed. No, no, this is early on, because Shannon Tweed, and we'll get into this when we do the New Liars Club in December, Shannon Tweed became a regular maybe about like halfway through the run, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Now, this is like a very early episode. Might have been in the first month or so. I don't remember the episode number, but she was definitely on a week of the New Liars Club. Not with Shadi LaRue, unfortunately. Which, remember, is John Barber's kid's favorite character on John Barber's kid's favorite TV show in 1988, even though it got canceled in 1988. But remember, we also did learn that John Barber's kid did the booking for the New Liars Club. 
So John Barber's kid was responsible for Arlene Kalanka being on the show. That's beautiful. Episode five, Convictions. Moonlighting at a prison, Otis insults a dangerous felon. Uh-oh. 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 Yeah, I watched this episode. It's like, there's like a poetry meet going on, and like, the prisoner goes to the poetry meet and reads a poem? And, like, Drexel, the whole episode's, like, scared of this guy because he thinks, like, this guy's going to come and kill him. He's got the look of a felon, with all due respect. He's not with us anymore. But taking a look at uh, him, Tim Rosevich, six foot four, big guy. He's got that look when I look at his picture on IMDb. He looks like he could be a killer of some sort. Oh, and it says here on IMDb, he was roommates with Tom Selleck in college. Oh. And I mentioned the imposing figure, the height, the look. He looks like somebody who could convincingly play some sort of prisoner. He actually was drafted in the first round of the NFL draft out of USC in 1968. He played a linebacker, played for the Eagles, made the Pro Bowl in 1969, and also played for the Chargers and Philadelphia Bell, which I'm guessing is World Football League. Yeah, World Football League. And then played for the Oilers in 76. So not only is he this imposing prisoner type of person, he was imposing on the football field. Episode 6. Viva Lost Wages! Viva Lost Wages! Viva Lost wages. All right, so you have a fifth grade class. Where are you going to take a fifth grade class on a field trip? Washington, D.C.? That's fun. Oh, Disneyland. Yep. So Drexel takes the class to Disneyland with a stop at Las Vegas. Because you could totally go directly to Las Vegas from Southern California. Oh, yeah, it totally checks out. But they all... Oh, my God. Drexel. Mr. Davis. They're all gambling. They're funny. And it's so stupid. And it gets so pathetic that they... I think at one point they get, like, Kenny to try to... Sneak off as like a little person with a mustache. Because he has the ability to count cards. Like Mr. Smith. Oh my god. Now you see, I was going to try and turn this into an educational thing saying they're learning about probability and statistics. I just love it even more because now you just invoked Mr. Smith and counting cards. I love it. Well, also, Mr. Drexel plays poker. He gambles with his own kids on the frickin' bus. That sounds like something he'd do. Oh, yes. Episode 7. Best Halloween ever. On Halloween, Drexel regales the class with scary stories, including one about Poish revenge on his daughter's boyfriend. Poish revenge. That could be so many things... 
and none of them are good. Episode 8, Driving Drexel Crazy. Now, by this time, we have a new principle because this is going to be the first of two retools that Fox has done with the show. But we have a new principle in Edie McClurg's character, Marilyn Ridge. Yes, Marilyn Ridge, but she's introduced in episode nine, so. But in this episode, Moonlighting Otis teaches Driver's Ed. And wacky shenanigans happen. We have a name in this episode. Plain Timothy is Brandon Douglas. The only reason I mention him is we talked about him previously. Because he played Cameron Fry in the TV version of Ferris Bueller. Sorry for yelling. Stop yelling at me. I know. I don't like when my TV shows yell at me either, Chico. I'm sorry. Also playing the role of Dion is Morris Chestnut. And his roles are numerous. We're talking Rosewood. We're talking The Best Man. We're talking Kick-Ass 2. The 2009 version of V. Episode 9. Down and out. At the out and in. Otis comes into money and quits. Now, you see, I would have been more interested if the title was called Down and Out at the In and Out because I could use a two-by-two right now. Animal style. They're in Iowa, Mike. They're nowhere near an In and Out. I'm just saying, I want In and Out right now. So good, and I haven't had it in, like, four years. One year. Haven't had it in one one year. year. What? We were in Vegas and had in and out last year, Mike. When was I in Vegas a year ago? The last oh, time I, I was in Vegas, I had two legs. God. That's the goldfish memory, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was in great to see this so we could be in this episode. That is beautiful. I was in Vegas last year. I could have sworn that you were with me. I remember we were at the in and out in Las Vegas one time, but I you sure? Was 2019. There that was it before is. the pandemic. And I, that had, was, like I had I said, when I had from, two legs. I had the picture from that you, time. You sure you didn't imagine me in Vegas? I've never been with you in Vegas, Greg. That's right. When have I'm, you actually been west of the Mississippi, Greg? I've never been west of New Orleans, so. Well, there you go. That being said, if anyone wants to give me a free plane ride to Vegas, I'll gladly go because I want to see a Golden Knights game there. Episode 10, the best Thanksgiving ever. A visit from Drexel's detested ex-mother-in-law threatens to ruin his Thanksgiving. Playing that mother-in-law, no name, but we did talk about her last week, Lou Leonard. We talked about her on an episode of Buffalo Bill last week. But also, I mentioned that I remembered her as Mrs. DeGroote on the season three premiere of Married with Children, where she played a school librarian who just had like a bitter hatred for Al. And I put the audio in there. Go back to that episode if you want to hear all that audio. Episode 11, Bully for Otis. Otis helps Kenny fight the school bully. We have several names in this episode 
Nurse Duval, Natasha Pavlovich, she makes a return appearance, playing the ex-boyfriend. That's his only on-screen credit is ex-boyfriend. Mitch Pileggi from The X-Files. Oh, okay. And then playing a character named Maria, Beth Broderick, Aunt Zelda from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh, the one who's not Caroline Ray. Correct. Is that really how we're going to remember her? The one who's the, not the, the one who's not Caroline Ray and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I mean, you're not wrong. Don't get me wrong, but that's how we're going to refer to her. Okay. Episode twelve: Silent Night. Holy smokes! Otis hires out Santa Clauses, then has to cover for them. Uh oh. Episode 13, My Own Private Iowa. Gee, I wonder what they're referencing in this. Hmm. Melissa bolts and Otis rents out her room. So I'm guessing Melissa goes to live with Slash. Yeah, probably. Uh, Brandon Douglas returns as Timothy and Julie McCullough returns as school secretary. Episode 14, Beauty and the Beast. wonder what this is referencing. Otis hates Melissa's posing in a bikini. Uh, yeah, I can understand why. This episode actually begins at sort of a fan convention. And in that fan convention, making a special appearance, one of the greatest players in L.A. Dodgers history, Steve Garvey. Gee, I wonder what that is in reference to. Greg, are you insinuating that he might be the dad of at least one of the kids in the class? Maybe. Would you like another name in this episode? Oh, yeah. Playing himself. Bob Eubanks. That's right. And directing this episode is even a name and a big name. Dick Martin. So you got Steve Garvey. You have Bob Eubanks. And you have Dick Martin. You know what that means, guys. Somebody somewhere has just completed their Loteria card? No, no, no. I was going to say, just like how earlier we had the is this typecasting thing, that's your stick, Chico. Greg's stick is who are three people that have never been in my kitchen. That is true. They have never been in my kitchen. Now, Steve Garvey, you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I'm going to invite you to my kitchen. Episode 15, Ashes to Ashes. Wait a minute. This is the spinoff of Life on Mars UK. Hey, I'm trying to keep some of 2024 a secret, dude. God. Otis goes bungee jumping after learning of a friend's death. The friend died and now he is feeling encouraged to bungee jump? That sounds weird because if I had a friend who died bungee jumping, I wouldn't touch a bungee cord to save my life. I think the two are mutually exclusive there, Mike. Now, Mike, this was 1992. Bungee jumping was the biggest thing on the planet. Everyone wanted to bungee jump. No, not everybody, because you know what? I've never 
wanted to bungee jump. I've never bungee jumped, and I don't plan on bungee jumping. So don't say everybody. Well, not me, but everyone mostly wants to bungee jump. And you know what? I'm not going to lie. I would want to watch someone bungee jump. So you're saying outside of me and you, the other 8.1 billion people in the world want a bungee jump. Yes. Whatever. We have a name on this episode, and this name is actually relevant to two generations. Playing Patty in this episode is Mary Jo Catlett. If you are myself and Greg's and Chico's age, you know her as Pearl on different strokes. If you are of a current generation, the 21st century, let's say, you know her as the voice of Mrs. Puff on SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, Mrs. Puff. The driving instructor, yeah. That's great. Episode 16, Till Death Do You Part. Otis learns his ex-wife is getting remarried. Now playing his ex-wife, Joanna Cassidy. You know what that means, guys. Let's punch her into the Hall of Fame. Episode 17, Cruisin'. Otis and family encounter a teen idol on a Caribbean cruise. And you want to talk about tying things together? Oh, yeah. Just right. say it. Say who the so, teen idol I'll tell is. you right now, one of their favorite shows is Teen Priest. And playing the role of Teen Priest is Jason Priestley. But he's not the only guest in this episode. My gosh. I think when you're talking about the guest, Chico, he may be the least popular guest, at least among the names that we're going to mention. Legitimately. Can we just rattle off the names here? Uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Digital Underground? I do want to start with that. That's a good one to start off with. Shock and G. Shock G. Sure. I think he's in the same vein as Bun B, but whatever. But the big one, especially given the news that just broke within like the last 24 hours or so. Tupac Shakur. Oh my god, yeah, because hold on a second. This is CNN Breaking News. They finally today got the guy who murdered Tupac Shakur after, what, 27 years? Before anything supposedly allegedly innocent till proven guilty but also did they say that he was the one who did it because i thought i read he was just in the same car not necessarily the one implicated not sure. i'm not bringing a whole debate here i'm just uh, I, just what i heard wasn't that necessarily he was the trigger man but he was in the same vehicle let's just say he's one of the guys responsible for the murder He's a party of interest. Yes. And I believe there is an ESPN 30 for 30 about this because this happened the night of a Tyson fight, if I remember correctly. It was absolutely a Tyson fight in Vegas, correct. And the thing is, it was the night of a Tyson fight, but the fight goes back to actually something that happened in a casino earlier that evening. Nothing related to the Tyson fight. But we're not here to educate you about Tupac Shakur and what happened in 1997 in Vegas. It was 96, but whatever. We're here to get to the last episode of the series. Episode 18, 
the resentments. Otis manages Melissa's band. The band is called the resentments. I mean, that's at least my take on this weird. And a couple people who are actually in the band with slash and Melissa. Well, maybe slash. I don't know. Is he playing bass in the resentments? I don't know. But playing Janet, a bandmate, Charlotte Ross. She was in 12 episodes of Arrow as Donna Smoke. I think she'd be better known as Detective Connie McDowell on 72 episodes of NYPD Blue, post David Caruso. So she was uh, on the show 1998 to 2004. Somebody might have seen her in this episode and thought she'd make a great musician. So she was cast in the one and only season of The Heights one year later. Not even one year later, like three months later. Wait, they did a TV show based on the Kelsey Brothers podcast? (laughs) Well, you know, since we've been talking about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey... Let's tie it in. It works beautifully. Listen, I'm rooting for these two kids. I'm sure these are two up-and-coming kids right here, this Travis Kelsey and this Taylor Swift. I'm sure these two people are going to turn out to be a real success in life. I'm drowning in sarcasm. You're writing the story about how Taylor wrote a song about Travis Kelsey right now, aren't you, Greg? How do you know she hasn't consulted me about <laughs> writing the song? Because she could have just told me, hey, Greg, you construct chat GBT to make some great stuff. How about in case I break up with Travis Kelsey, you have chat GBT write the breakup song about it. And I was like, sure, Taylor, I'll make that and you'll make millions of dollars off this. So that's the show. And now let's ask ourselves what the hell happened? Because as I said, this was in between the Simpsons and 90210 on Thursday nights. So, okay. You have the Simpsons in its second year on Thursday nights. Because remember, for its second season, Fox moved The Simpsons from Sunday night at 8 to Thursday night at 8, opposite the Mr. Black show. And 90210 is in its sophomore season. So you think, okay, Simpsons is a big hit. Beverly Hills 90210 is a big hit. Surely this can't go wrong. So let's look at the competition. On ABC... You have something called pros and cons. Oh, James Earl Jones and Madge Sinclair. Okay. Wouldn't that be Gabriel's Fire? Yeah, it says formerly known as Gabriel's Fire. Asterisk on the fall schedule. Okay. And then on CBS, you have Top Cops which was like a documentary series, not to be confused with Cops on Fox. 
Top Cops was still a good series. It ran for like four seasons. It was one of my favorite shows back in the day. Oh, but on NBC opposite Drexel's class. And this is going to do it. A different world. Oh, Lord. And this would have been final season? Next to last. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's going to do it in terms of uh, like a one-two punch. You know, Top Cops was a good show. And obviously, different world. Very good show. But also, let's remember that this is the fifth season that Fox had scheduled primetime programming. Fifth, well, fifth, sixth. Because they did do like March through September of 87 before, you know, it was just like a soft launch or whatever you want to call it with Saturday and Sunday programming. But still, the reception wasn't there. You, You did not have... Fox television everywhere at this point. It was probably legit. I'm going to say three years till a lot of places got Fox because remember, they didn't get the NFC football coverage, NFL coverage until 94. So at that point, there's a demand for Fox because they're showing all the NFC football games, not CBS. Yeah, and that really put Fox in serious consideration as a major network because before that it was just like on like rinky dink UHF stations. And then once they got the NFC from CBS, it was like, Oh, we want Fox. And then remember also that same year, 94, that's when you had the big transition where like eight CBS stations became Fox affiliates and vice versa. So you did have a lot of stations, a lot of, Markets buying into the whole Fox hype. But I do have ratings for this show. For that reason that the coverage of Fox wasn't that big in 1991, you could probably expect the ratings to be on the low side. I have the ratings for the premiere week. So we're talking September 16th through the 22nd of 1991. And out of 86 shows, it ranked at 59th. Now, I think another thing we need to take a look at is where did it rank among Fox shows? Because, again, Fox had a lot of really bad shows at that point. And uh, taking a look, the top-rated show, maybe no surprise here for 1991. Coming in 20th was Married with Children. Actually, was right below Monday Night Football, of all things. So that tells you how big Married with Children was at that time. And then uh, next would have been The Simpsons. At 33. And then In Living Color was in a three-way tie for 34th. Again, big show on Fox in 1990-91. And then you had Beverly Hills 90210 at 47. So that's the fourth highest rated Fox show. And then fifth, Drexel's Class. So fifth highest ranking to begin with out of all Fox's shows. Even though, you know, 59th isn't all that good. But, you know, taking a look at the rest of the shows that Fox had, Berman's Head, Rock, they showed I'm Going to Get You, Sucka, that ranked lower. Parker Lewis Can't Lose, well, apparently he did lose this time. True Colors, uh, Sunday Comics, America's Most Wanted, Ultimate Challenge. I don't even see Cops on here, so maybe Cops wasn't on this week. 
but yeah, it was fifth out of like, what were there about 13, 14 shows. So it was decent. I would say for Fox purposes at this point, if we look at week two, did it have similar success out of 96 shows? 67. Oh, too shy of finishing in the nicest slot of them all. And taking a look, Beverly Hills 90210 had better ratings, 58th. And The Simpsons, 36th that week. So maybe this is a weak link trying to tie The Simpsons and Beverly Hills 90210. I don't know. If we look in October, so... We are now on episode three, September 30th through October 6th, 53rd out of 95 shows. Again, not good. And Beverly Hills 90210 was 45th, so a little higher. And The Simpsons was 29th. Actually, for the week, it was tied with uh, Mary with Children as Fox's highest rated show. But there's still a lot of shows on Fox that got worse ratings. Rock again. Cops. A second episode of Cops. Parker Lewis again. America's Most Wanted again. True Colors. Best of the Worst. Totally Hidden Video. Ultimate Challenge. And there's some shows there that actually lasted more than a season. I mean, Totally Hidden Video ran till what? Like 94? It ran at least like three seasons. Had two hosts. I don't remember Totally Hidden Video going past 92. Totally Hidden Video. Yeah, it did run, uh, looks like three seasons. But it was 89 to 92. So this didn't survive the 91-92 season. But yeah, it was hosted by Steve Scrovan and then Mark Pitta. For episode four, 60th out of 86 shows. Oh, another show that didn't do so well for Fox. And I love this. I miss this show. They used to rerun it on VH1 like 20 years ago. Sunday Comics. Do you remember the Sunday Comics? I remember the Sunday Comics. No, I don't I remember. Thought, you don't remember? I thought that was a brilliant show. It was stand-up, but also they did little vignettes, little, you know, it was kind of, I don't want to say SNL-ish. It was more of a stand-up show, but it had little... Like uh, interstitials, if you will, like uh, what you'd see on SNL, the digital shorts. Oh, I love that show. Then the following week, uh, 65th out of 89 shows. And then uh, fourth week of October, 58th out of 88 shows. And number 88 was the aforementioned Sunday comics, which is a shame. I think that was hosted by Rosie O'Donnell, if I remember correctly. No, or it was if... first hosted by Jeff Altman. Oh, well, that explains it. That explains it right there. <laughs> and then it was hosted by Lenny Clark. I thought Rose, maybe Rosie O'Donnell appeared on uh, I could uh, see where Sunday Rosie Comics. O'Donnell would appear on the Sunday comics, yeah, but not but... hosted. Personally. Right, right. That, that's I, I, th- That was my confusion there. I, I remember seeing her on Sunday comics. I thought she hosted it, but she definitely, I think, uh, appeared on that. So now we're going to jump ahead to middle of November, 67th show out of 90. And Greg, I hate to say this, the worst ranked show that week was a Fox show. 
get a life. People did not appreciate Chris Elliott in 1991. No. But again, maybe it's because it was too bizarre. We talked about that episode, and that was a great episode. I I seriously loved uh, the Get a Life episode. All right, one more week, and this looks like it's the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, 67th, tied for 67th, I should say, out of 90 shows. And again, show number 90, Get a Life. People just hating on Chris Elliott. So I think that sort of paints a picture a little bit. Yeah, the low ratings. Maybe there's a cost issue because I'm sure Dabney Coleman doesn't come cheap. Maybe that's why they kept around your America's Most Wanted and your cops. Well, obviously, they're very cheap. You don't have to pay any actors. You just need to do some editing. And maybe you got to pay John Walsh some money and pay for the uh, 1-800-CRIME-TV or CRIME-91 or whatever they used at that point. But, yeah, it, it didn't survive this one year. It had great, cushy shows in front of it and behind it. But at the same time, as we said, Top Cops, decent show, a different world, a much better show. It was still in that uh, Thursday night must-see TV lineup and Drexel's class, unfortunately, uh, it didn't make the grade. So you know what that means, guys. Drexel's class. It was just a thing on TV. As always, if you want to listen to more stories about more things on TV, you can head over to itwasathingontv.com. You can listen to the 414 episodes that preceded this one. Great bonuses, minisodes, live shows, extended versions. They're all there. Also, we're on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, Mastodon. It was a thing on TV is the username you want to look for, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was A Thing On TV Podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed. Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeart, Audible, YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, we are there as well. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. Don't forget to hit the notification bell so you can be informed of all of our future uploads, including what's coming up on Thursday. We've had three straight shows of Dabney Coleman. We've enjoyed those. But now we're going to celebrate season two of another podcast favorite, at least of Greg and Mines, by featuring somebody who will be prominently appearing on season two of that show. Let's just say he went from being one of the Goonies to winning an Oscar. And also Steve Smith is in this. And by Steve Smith, I don't mean the basketball player, and I don't mean the former Carolina Panther. That's Steve Smith Sr. Yes, that's the old man. What we're talking about is a Virginia-based animated high school nerd. Oh, and there was a Giants wide receiver that went by Steve Smith. That's probably why they call him Junior and Senior. I was waiting for you to make reference to the wide receiver from the Giants from about 15 years ago. He was good for like two or three years, then sort of petered out. Well, he did have a couple of catches in that Super Bowl in 2008. Not as spectacular as David Tyree, though. 
but still an integral piece to the Super Bowl title nonetheless. Confused? You won't be after our next installment of It Was a Thing on TV. For Greg, for Mike, I'm Chico. Thank you ever so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Row! I asked Chat GPT to write a Taylor Swift breakup song when she breaks up with Travis Kelsey. Oh, God! Sit back, gentlemen. We used to dance in the moonlight, Travis oh so bright. But now the stars have faded, and I'm here alone tonight. I thought we had a touchdown, a love so strong and deep. But now it's fourth and long, and I need my heart to keep. You were the quarterback of my heart. But now it's time for us to part. I'll pack my bags and I'll walk away. But there's something I just have to say. Travis, you are my MVP. But now it's time to set you free. Our love was like a touchdown pass. But now it's just a broken glass. I'll cherish all the moments the way you made me feel. But now it's time to heal and let our love congeal. You caught my heart like a spiral in the end zone of my soul. But now it's time to find myself and take back control. You are the quarterback of my heart, but now it's time for us to part. I'll pack my bags and I'll walk away, but there's something I just have to say. Travis, you are my MVP, but now it's time to set you free. Our love was like a touchdown pass, but now it's just a broken glass. I'll remember the moments when we were in sync, but I can't ignore the pain. It's time to rethink. I'll find my own end zone, a love that's meant to be, Travis, you are the quarterback, but I'll find my MVP. Travis, you are my MVP, but now it's time to set you free. Our love was like a touchdown pass, but now it's just a broken glass. So I'll say goodbye, and I'll wish you well. In this game of love, only time will tell. Travis, you are my MVP, but now it's time to find the real me. Aww. Ding.